Welcome to Video Night. The main focus of the show is going to be people who do really great work, but for some reason or not, they're not household names. They're the people who I think, you know, deserve the cult following they have. But this week's a pretty big one, and it took a little bit out of my uh, courage bin to actually ask this person to do the show for me. He is the star of 10 Items or Less, which ran for three years on TBS, a truly fantastic show you must catch. Uh, he was in the short series uh, Jailbait, which it was intentionally short. It was like six episodes. And right now he is the star of Quick Draw on Hulu. It's a Hulu exclusive series. In fact, all three series that I just mentioned are on uh, Hulu and they're free on your computer. And they do cost a little bit if you're going to have it like on your Xbox or any sort of like streaming like Roku kind of thing. But totally worth it if you have to pay for it. He was also in the TV show Jesse, if you remember that. It was on for two years with Christina Applegate. And I believe uh, a handful of movies. Uh, he's a really funny guy, really nice guy. Uh, and I'm really glad this is going to be the first episode. So here we go. Welcome, everybody. I'm here with John Lear. I did say that right, right? Yeah, you did. Okay. Uh, which is odd because the way my name is uh, spelled, it should be pronounced Lair, but for some reason, my family pronounces it Lear. I have no Oddly idea. Oddly enough, that. I went to college with a guy with the same exact name, so I was just assuming that it would be the same. And he, he pronounced it Lear, too. Yeah, he did. Huh. All right. Well, maybe it's the correct way. I <laughs> Have you have I you seen it? Lair maybe? would be made a lot more sense. Yeah, the H threw me off. In fact, um, I just assumed it was, and then I heard somewhere else like you were doing another podcast, and I heard it. I was like, oh, it is the same. Wow. <laughs> How excited are you about the end of season two? Oh, I'm I'm you know I'm bummed because I love working on the show, so it's kind of a it's kind of a bittersweet time for us because you know Nancy and I, my partner Nancy Hauer and I produce all the episodes um we write all the episodes she directs all the episodes and uh essentially with uh our editor uh one of our editors maura Corey, we take the episodes all the way through post so you know it's it's um it, it's sort of like you know you're glad and you're excited to see what people are going to think of it but you're also sort of like oh okay that's over what next well, the nice part is you got a lot of fan support and a lot of people talking about season three. I think a couple of people are talking about season three and four already, which is amazing that people are really jumping on that bandwagon. Yeah, I mean that's so it's we're so grateful for that because for us to be able to um, put the next season's uh, shows out uh, next fall, we really need to start writing now. So um, the fact that the fans are clamoring for it, you know, works for us. It, it means we can. Hopefully, we'll get the official pickup from Hulu soon, and then we can, you know, start the process all over again. What is it like? I, I feel like um, from the post that I would see about the show, it feels like the shooting of it and the editing of it went fairly quickly, or is that just kind of illusion? Is it spend most of the time writing it? Yeah, uh, most of the time is in post. Post, uh, we spend about uh, five to six months uh, editing it, and and the and the reason for that is is because. It's all improvised. The show is all the dialogue is improv. So um, there, it, it, there, there's a lot of footage. <laughs> well, that's uh, the nice thing is digital digital video allows you to shoot as much as you want. Whereas yeah. if it was 10, 20 years ago, you're shooting with uh, film and you'd be like, oh, yeah. we're out of time. 
Yeah, this would not be possible in the age of film. Uh, our 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 uh, you know uh, style would not be possible, not without a lot more money. <laughs> so yeah, it's good that we can just shoot and shoot and shoot. We shoot. We roll three cameras. Nancy, you know, as I said, directs all the episodes. We roll three cameras, sometimes four, um, and we shoot. Uh, we end up we end up with about you know somewhere around twenty five hours of footage per episode. Holy moly, that's a lot yeah. of editing. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. Now, you know, a lot of that's, you know, a lot of it gets thrown out right away. But, um, but yeah, when you get down to the last hour, it's, it's a drag. Do you ever have <laughs> to drop any storylines when you do that kind of editing? All the time. Oh. We have to make decisions all the time that really, really hurt. Um, usually the plot stuff ends up staying in for the most part. I mean, sometimes the B plot, you know, or the C, the, the C runner, you know, the, the minor storylines. Some those are the ones that usually get whittled away, unfortunately. Um, but but uh, but the plot usually, for the most part, you know, stays in, stays the way we wanted it. Well, that's good. Uh, hopefully, that do you know? Are they going to be releasing it on home video? I don't know. I have not heard one word about a home video release, and I think it's because it lives forever on Hulu. So their sort of thinking, I think, is. Um, hey, you don't need uh, home video. You can go and watch it anytime you want. And and anybody can watch it for free anytime they want, which is something I, a lot of people don't know, that if you watch it from a browser from your computer at Hulu.com, you can watch Quick Draw for free. Yeah, and all three of your shows actually are yes. on there. I just finished Jailbait. That's the one I was kind of <laughs> lagging behind. That's a really quick series. Did you shoot that pretty fast? Yeah, Jailbait, uh, Nancy uh, uh, she directed that as also, also the two of us created it and, and wrote it. And I think we shot it in two to three days. Wow. And, and the crazy thing about Jailbait, Jailbait isn't for everybody. No, <laughs> so it's, it's darker than your other series, <laughs> I believe. Um, but it the crazy thing about Jailbait is that we were, uh, I was sick as a dog when we shot that. Like, like feverish, wow. uh, just crazy sweats. Uh, so I had no idea what I said during the shooting of it, you know, until we got to the edit room. And But I love it. I love Jailbait. I think Jailbait – I get comments about Jailbait all the time where people call up or write me, and they, they just love that uh, that series, and it's near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I'm not going to give away the ending at all, but that turn <laughs> – that turn was one of the most amazing, like, jaw on the floor. Like, what? <laughs> yeah. Do you think you'll yeah, ever revisit we, the series? We would love to, but uh, Sony owns it, um, uh, so they would. It would be up to them, you know, if they wanted to make more. Uh, they made it. We made it for Crackle, which is Sony's kind of uh, Hulu, uh, and uh, but it, but it also lives on Hulu, which is interesting. I don't know how any of that works. But. Yeah, I noticed. I noticed with ten items or less, like the first two episodes are on Crackle, but the rest of it's on Hulu. So if you go searching for it, that's it's yeah. going to be jumping networks. I don't know why that is, but yeah, you're right. It, 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 it's a new age, man. It's the Wild West out there. Isn't that great? Because, I mean, as much as, uh, you know, 10 Items Less is one of those things that I revisit on a regular basis. It's one of those shows that's near and dear to me because it. Uh, I worked in market for a while, and they were like my family. And then watching that show, it's like... Leslie Poole loved those guys so much, but there was also kind of a, a sadness to him, even beyond all the goofy behavior. He was very sincere. He was very dedicated to keeping that grocery store open. Defy, you know, the odds against him were so high. Yes. 
Yes. And he wanted yeah. to keep it together, not just because of his uh, blood relation, you know, because it was his dad's, but because those people at that store were his family. Yes. Yes, that's you totally get the uh, the crux of that show. That show is, from our point of view, that show was a family comedy, uh, even though it was at a workplace, and uh, because those people were just so intertwined, and and um, I think a lot of that had to do with you know we shot that show in a grocery store that was open for business while we shot. Every once in a while, I'll notice in the background someone kind yes. of slowly like looking at the camera, like they don't know what's going on. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, most, or not most, but a lot of the extras in that show were actual shoppers. And, uh, and, and so there was a real grocery store crew there working in tandem with us, you know. And so we were all, and we'd all hang out. The two crews would hang out, the TV crew and the real, uh, uh, you know, cashiers and stock boys. We'd all hang out. And so they, we started to watch how they were, and they were like a family, you know. And so I think that affected the show in a big way. How how is it that you were able to keep this? Like, say you're filming a scene down a certain aisle, and someone really, really wanted something down that aisle. Did you pause filming, grab it for them, or just let them shop through? How did that work? Well, on both. What was you know many at first people would would come up to me all the time and they would say you know where's the ketchup and I'd be like look I'm not a manager and blah 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 because we didn't make a big deal about the filming you know we had yeah we had cameras but in L A you know you see cameras all the time so and we didn't make a big we didn't scream out rolling we were kind of quiet about it mm-hmm. um, and so people didn't know when we were rolling when we weren't what the hell we were doing they didn't know and uh, so finally I just started to learn where the products were and would just tell people where to go. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, ketchup, aisle nine. You know? <laughs> and, then, and then there there were plenty of times where I would improvise with, um, you know, real uh, uh, shoppers, and some of those would make the cut, you know. Did, did you feel that you got um, a, an ending to the show, or was there some stuff that you wanted, you still had to say with that uh, season ending? Oh, yeah. We, we were really bummed out when we got canceled. We went three seasons, and we would have loved to have continued going. We definitely had um, more to say and more more episodes. I mean, we felt like we were kind of just beginning to hit our stride, really, because um, our style was so crazy. I mean, this was a while back, and, you know, yeah, there, this was, you know, uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm was, I believe we were before Curb Your Enthusiasm, although I could be wrong. Maybe it was right around the same time. Yeah, I think, I think so, Curb started in 2001, maybe. Okay, so we, so we were before, or no, maybe we were after. We were yeah, after. I think you're, I'm pretty sure 10 times less was 2006 or 2007. Oh, yeah, you're right. Right. Um, so anyway, it curb wasn't you know really out there in a big way. So people didn't really accept the idea of improv and and kind of showing the process. Uh, you know, because if you look at the scenes, you I see the actors improvising. I see them working, and it's you can tell this is not scripted, and you can tell that these people are just there's a certain connection and a certain vibe that you only get with improv that I think we, we and our fans were just kind of beginning to sync up on. So I, I would have loved to have done more. I, I would love to do 10 items now. I, I love that show. Maybe you can start a Kickstarter. Well, I yes. However, the only problem with that is that Sony owns oh, 10 that's right. or less. 
So uh, we would uh, we would have to uh, figure out something. And here's the weird thing: they're still making money off of ten items or less. You know, the show has grown quite a bit. Um, you know, it's funny oh. is you think that even like really popular shows, shows that are in the top ten, top twenty, you know, on networks, fade away. But every once in a while, out of nowhere, this show will pop up again, and people are talking about it. It's so bizarre, and and I think it has a lot. To, I know also internationally, it's still uh, you know it's still in a lot of countries because I'll get emails from friends. I, I from a friend who was just in Peru actually, who was like, I saw ten items or less. Uh, so you know, there it, it, it's it's incredible, and and I also think that this the following of ten items or less had a great deal to do with quick draw uh, because of the success of ten items or less on Hulu. Hulu called Nancy and I in uh, to say, hey, you know, 10 Items is doing well. We'd love to do an original show with you guys. Do you have anything? And that led to Quick Draw. Um, the one thing I noticed about all of your characters is that they're so sincere and so positive. And I think that's something <laughs> that kind of transcends the material and changes it. And a lot of shows now, especially like the stuff on cable and um, streaming, kind of negative, kind of dark. They keep going into these dark... Even Jailbait, your character was very positive. Yeah. And I think that's something that is very unique. I mean, w would you say that's something that's part of your life? Yes. That, it's, you, it is very core to what we want to do. We, we do not... We're not interested in, you know, comedy that derives its comedy from making fun of others. We, we really want the comedy to come from making fun of ourselves. And, and our hope is, is that like you make fun of ourselves, you know, you, you see, you know, I am self-deprecating. <laughs> He's very positive, but he also is very flawed. And, and so out of that, hopefully people connect with that and, and they're able to, we think, we think it's easier to connect with a character who is positive, but flawed uh, and you're able to see yourself in that than somebody who's just sort of a jerk. Yeah, I've you know? never, I've never understood. I'm from Indiana, and, and I know it might annoy some of my friends from Indiana, but there was a kind of uh, a different sense of humor there, where it was more um, mock each other, give each other a hard time, almost borderline bully. Where yes. um, my sense of humor was kind of skewed in a different sense. I'll have to say that there's a lot of influence from Bill Cosby and Steve Martin, where it's like kind of absurdist but very personal at the same time. And right. I feel like that kind of humor is disarming, and it brings people in when you can, not just self-deprecating, but just something you're trying a little bit harder. It's, it's easy to tease and mock. That's right. And there's a lot, of, a lot of shows out there that can take that easy road out. You know, we have so many reality shows with the talking heads where they just mock each other. And exactly. to see shows like this that... Um, a totally creative. You're 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 putting your, um, you know, your creativity and your intelligence to the limits, trying to find the best angles to go in something fresh and new, and that that's why I'm just I love the shows. Well, thank you. I you know I I, I just I love that you that you pick up on that because it's it, it is a big part of what we want to be doing. You know, we we the great thing about quick draw too is that you have all of this action and you have all of this darkness and bloodshed and and the horrid uh, lifestyle you know of living in the west and so you we really have our cake and eat it too you know we get to have this these characters who are really accessible you know really optimistic within this sort of just really horrid time to live i mean and 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 so you get 
you have all this bloodshed and and and, and anarchy around them but um but he's a good guy you know and he you know <laughs> he wants to you know he really really genuinely wants to marry the whore i know he's like so in love with her but at the same time he kind of gives into his weaknesses he's like time to get laid you know and just like let's go take care of this and then the, the weird thing about the um not the weird thing but the thing that I enjoy the most about it is that, okay, so there's been a lot of horror, or not horror comedies, I don't know where that came from, sorry, <laughs> rewind, western comedies, but a lot of them are spoof, almost every single one is a spoof, yours isn't so much a spoof, because the crimes that he's trying to solve are completely real, the bad guys are truly serious villains, it's, it's like the juxtaposition of those middle points between the high adventure and detective work, those conversations, it's like, not everything in the West was constant shootouts. It's like there's those right. down times where you're like just conversing about just menial things, you know, like an everyday yeah. kind of thing. But they're so absurd. That you, I mean, again, you're 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 preaching to the choir. I, <laughs> that, I mean, what we're interested in doing is uh, what what brought us into doing um, the, a historical comedy was the mundanity of it. The you know. What the day to day, day in a life? What's it like to have to wipe your butt with a corn cob? <laughs> it is essentially uh, you know, what, what we think is really, really funny. And um, and and when people say, "Oh, this is a spoof," uh, I'm always like, "Really?" Because I, I really don't think we're spoofing the genre. Uh, the characters are are nutty. There's no question, and and there is a, a heightened comedy sense to it. But I, in my mind at least, I'm not. We're not out there to sort of make fun of the genre of westerns. In fact, most of our fans, or not most, but a lot of our fans, um, are people who have never were never fans of western, and and the show has brought them in to the western genre. They'll be like, God, you know, this makes me want to watch, <laughs> you know, some of the shows that influenced you. So. Um, yeah, we're not Blazing Saddles, you know. We love Blazing Saddles, but that's not what this show is. It's like you respect the genre, but at the same time, you know that there's these moments that oh, this is ripe for just, like, poking at a little bit and going, no one's ever had this conversation. They never talk about this kind of stuff. <laughs> and you think that someone would somewhere along the line, but that's why you right. had to do it. Did, were you a fan of Westerns? Totally. I mean, I grew up in Kansas. You know, that's, um, that's where the show is set. Uh, and, and I grew up, you know, watching, you know, all the TV Western shows, the Rifleman, Rifleman and uh, a Gunsmoke and uh, the Cisco Kid and the Lone Ranger and you know, just all of it. Uh, and, and so and then I was also I grew up in Kansas and Kansas is where, you know, all of this stuff was happening. Kansas and Arizona was where the two big epicenters of what we see as the Wild West and. Um, so I kind of grew up just uh, through osmosis, knew a lot of the history. You know, I knew about the Bloody Benders, which is this family of serial killers uh, who we did an episode about in, uh, in season one, episode uh, two or three. Anyway, it was early. Yeah, I remember it was really early because I, uh, I watched the first two episodes, but I moved and I, I didn't have the Internet for a while. And then I finished the rest of it. I knew it was, I knew it was in the early part. Yeah. So, and they were a real family, and so, so the one of the things that makes Quick Draw so much fun to write is that we we use borrow real historically correct things and fold them into the story. Now we we deviate from them constantly. Uh, for example, uh, Cole Younger uh, was a real guy, uh, and and he was in that part of Kansas during that time. But 
he didn't wear a mask and we we threw a mask on him because we thought that would make him be fun and play homage yeah that's the thing Ranger. okay so subconsciously i think for me um when i see that you've altered Col uh colt younger am i saying it right it's cole younger right not colt yes. okay cole, cole younger um by adding that mask you almost give him a super villain aspect and yes. <laughs> I think season two, obviously Hulu appreciated what you guys did with the first season. It looks like they gave you a lot more money for the action sequences and stuff like that. And with that, with the comedy, but overall there's like this big universe you're building and it felt kind of like the way Joss Whedon treats his shows. Yes, there's funny yeah. moments, but there's these serious villains and that's why Cole Younger that's... was like the big bad of season two. Yeah, fire. we're huge fans of Firefly. Um, you know, that, that's definitely, you know, something that we, you know, pull from, uh, and, 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 and watched when we were getting ready to shoot quick draw for that reason, that exact reason. Um, yes. Uh, surprisingly though, uh, Hulu did increase the budget, but not as much as you might think. It, and, and so really the, the credit has to go to Nancy, uh, you know, and, and our crew. I mean, I, I think they just started to figure out more and more. I mean, we're comedy people, so dealing with gun shoots, uh, gun shootouts, and and horses, and 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 you know all of the action stunts, all of that was all new uh, to us from a production standpoint. So I think we as a crew got better and better uh, at working all of that in. There's a couple sequences that just blew my mind. They were movie level. I mean, the, the final episode alone. But there's a, I think it's like see, I want to see season two about episode five or six. All I'm gonna say is. Gatlin got on the chest. That was so <laughs> clever and so wild. You're just like, what? That's our uh, steampunk homage uh, uh, episode too. Yeah, that, you know, we, um, yeah, we just, Nancy and I, when we were writing, we were like, let's go for it. And then we can, we'll figure it out as we go. And so we just wrote big. I remember when our crew got the scripts, they were like, oh my God, how are we going to shoot this? And we're like, look, we're just going to, we're going to figure it out, <laughs> you know. I mean, there's a cattle drive, there's a stagecoach scene, there's you know, shootouts beyond, uh, you know, tons of stunts. So, yeah, we really, really uh, went for it. Yeah, independent shows and movies are usually where the best, most creative ideas. They're so limited by budget, they have to come up yes. with different... I mean, I think Roger Corman's probably, like, the originator of, yes. like, well, we got five bucks, let's figure out something, you know? And yes. I think it forces you to be more creative instead of, like, well, we got $200 million to burn, let's just have CGI guys fix all this. Agreed. I, I hate for my bosses to hear that, but it is true. You know, <laughs> the, uh, we... There's a, there is, at its core... I think movie making is still a man, a homemade process. It's a handmade process. You know, people are actually figuring it, it's problem solving as you go. You make one prototype product and then duplicate that and send it out. So making that prototype product is is a artesian uh, thing. You know, you really have to go. Okay, wait a minute. Okay, let's duct tape this here and then we'll use some. <laughs> You know, and, and, and that's my favorite part of it is when all the different departments are all huddled together and we're like, okay, how are we going to do this? <laughs> you know, and, and then when it works, it's, it's so gratifying. What I'm curious about is since you were limited on budget, you didn't build a town, did you? Was that a, was that a pre-existing town or a set? That is a pre-existing uh, town uh, that's a set uh, that uh, has been around. It's infamous here in L.A. It's been around forever. It's called Paramount Ranch. It's uh, in the L.A. area. 
tons of productions have shot on it. When you walk around, you just have this familiar uh, vibe to it. Um, it's kind of, it reminds me of there's a, um, there's a rock formation outside of L.A. called Vasquez Rocks. Uh, well, the one from Star Trek? Every Star Trek episode, <laughs> you go there and you're like, oh my God, everything is been and, and Paramount Ranch is sort of like that. The last pro, uh, production to shoot there was um, Dr. Quinn, Medicine Woman. Oh, wow. Uh, so it kind of set empty for a while, huh? Yeah, I did. It, it, it shot for, I mean, was that, I think that that show shot for something like eight or 12 yeah, years. Yeah, it was on. I remember it being on for a very long time. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess it wasn't too hard to book the studio. <laughs> no. Uh, that's the one good side of doing a western. Nobody else is really doing. I mean, there's a few here and there who are you know, try it, but yeah, uh, uh, the, getting the costumes and the horses and the the people, uh, the crew, the the that kind of is relatively easy, you know, because we're kind of the only people out there doing it on a consistent level. There's hell on wheels, uh, but they shoot in Canada. Oh yeah, I think a lot of westerns have shot up in Canada over the last like 20 of even like kevin costner was shooting up there for budget reasons and plus it's one of the few places still that has sets but it's nice that they yeah. still have one in uh, los angeles you know a classic set that you can shoot at that way you did not have to travel very far yeah it, now if we get a season three we are that we, we have been discussing uh with dodge city about going out there to shoot the real dodge city in kansas shoot out there uh, we'll see if we can make it work we'd really like to didn't you do a promotional event not that long yes. ago there yeah. How did well, that I go? To, I, it was fun, hilarious, and fantastic. Um, we the Boot Hill Casino uh, invited us out. My a friend of mine from high school uh, works for the casino, and he's high up there. And he called and said, "Hey, why don't you come out and do and, and shoot?" And I said, "Well, I would love to figure out a way to do a promotional event out there to promote the show, but also so that I can show Nancy." who's, you know, from Jersey, uh, <laughs> what Kansas looks like. And so Nancy and I went out there, and it was it was awesome. It was awesome. I mean, it, the, the Boot Hill Casino was amazing. Like, it was like one of the best-run marketing things I have ever gone to. Yeah, I mean, some of those Western places, they, they kind of let go and run down, but I know there's a few, like, uh, I want to say there's one in Arizona or New Mexico, and it's like that, where they really put a yeah. lot of money into it. It's a big tourist yes. thing. you got to keep those things alive. I remember yeah. when I was a little kid, there was one in Ohio called Cowboy Town, and they put so much money into it. In my mind, I was like, this is what it was like, even though I'm sure half yeah. it was built way, way after the Western yeah. Yeah. died out. I grew up in, in Kansas City. Uh, there was a, a, a town called Missouri Town. That was a pioneer town in Missouri that I worked at as a teenager, and, and I'm sure influenced me a lot in, in writing this. I guess I'm, I'm kind of doing this a little bit backwards, but you know, we're talking about Kansas, we're talking about your influences. I guess we can just start like your like early years of acting. Did you, did you start in like school, or did you do it post-school, like something that came later in life? It came, I mean, I was always a class clown, you know, growing up. I was always the kid who talked too much, um, but I, I was a pretty good student, uh, and uh, in high school, I did a lot of, I did theater, and uh, but I was never the lead in any of the theater shows. I was always a cut-up and a goofball, you know, and I, I got into forensics, not uh, the study of dead people, but the speech tournaments, uh -huh. <laughs> and and that that really kind of gave me my first feeling of like, oh, wow, this is, uh, you know, fun, and uh, so I went to college at Northwestern mainly to become a teacher. Uh, but I auditioned for an improv show 
uh, at the school that was, and that just changed everything. When I got on, an, um, when I real, when I was on stage and I could say whatever I wanted to say, mm-hmm. uh, I was, you know, off and running. Now, so, it seems yeah. like it seems like your school of improv is kind of a newer style. Uh, for the most part, yeah. when I was a child, the only other thing I knew about improv was either you know like oh Chevy Chase was known for winging it on the set of Fletch and whose yeah. line is it anyway and that was the only kind of yes. improv you ever heard of but yeah. it, it, I mean is that something that uh, was relatively new when you started? Yeah, from my from my point of view, absolutely. Uh, the, it's now widely done uh, a style that is now called long form improv where you focus more on telling a story and scenes and and the connection acting you know rather than just being sort of clever uh with you know puns or satire or or games like where uh, they where they set it up and they rehearse it's not really improv it's not from like emotional mental place it's more like it almost seems like rehearsal like constant rehearsal doing the same bits and you just kind of fluctuate which is exactly. kind of, it's kind of weird. It doesn't seem natural at all, which is what I enjoy about the new school of improv. Yes, yeah, you're absolutely right. And uh, and and so when I was coming up in improv, there was all of these games and and uh, uh, presentational form of improv, where kind of like whose line is it anyway, where you really try to prove, you know, how clever you are. You know, you and and. Uh, I, I I wasn't crazy about it. I was okay at it, but I wasn't crazy about it. I really wanted to, you know, connect with the, the partner on on stage and, and create a, a scene, a story. And and um, uh, a few of us kind of uh, started uh, this improv show called Ed uh, Ed that was super successful in Chicago and super short lived, <laughs> uh, but it, um, it 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 really changed the way I thought about improv and some people give Ed credit for sort of starting the long form I mean I mean I don't know if that's full I don't know if that's fair um I think that uh improv Olympia uh, uh or improv Olympic at the time Del Closes theater was doing a thing called the Herald which combined games and scenes and kind of had a longer structure but Ed did have a really super free form kind of uh, style that I had never seen anywhere else. So, Well, I always feel like comedy has these little movements. Like every five, ten years, something major comes along and changes comedy. I mean, for a long time, like when I was a kid, there was only one type of like stand-up. There's only one type of comedian on in movies and TV. And then like in the eight, late 80s, like alternative comedy started going and things just keep evolving faster and faster. It seems like every time a new thing is set, there's another one coming right around the corner. And, yeah. but, but it keeps people on their toes. They have to keep evolving, keep changing. They have to uh, do something new to keep people interested, which is great. Because you get stagnant. Yeah. You get stagnant in any job. It's bad. But especially when you're trying to like be creative. You know, you don't want to do the same thing over and over. I can't imagine what it's like for any. Uh, my degree is in theater, and yes. um, I was a technical guy. I was doing more lighting and sounds, but I had to do acting as part of my scholarships. Right. And the Good. simple fact I had to sit there and memorize these huge monologues and these bits and pieces and have to do them every single night for months. Yeah. And that drove me nuts. And then when it came to like our acting classes and he would let us do improv, I would just let loose. And it was so freeing because I can't imagine yeah. just sitting there like, oh, is the 12th time I've had to repeat the same paragraph. Yes. Yeah, they, they are, there are two schools of people. There are people who love that written, uh, memorized style. And, 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 that, and that the art of it is getting very specific and drilling down and, and, and finding the life within the text. And then there's another 
school of people, which I'm afraid you fall into, which is more left brain jazz kind of mentality of like, no, I want to rebel against that entirely. It doesn't help to have a short attention span. Do you, do you have like one of those? Are you really focused? I, yes, I'm, you know, very, I guess, ADD, uh, I, although, I don't know, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I'm like two people in one body, I'm, I'm very obsessive compulsive when I'm not on stage, and then when I'm in front of the camera, that all goes away, <laughs> and I'm in a free form kind of left brain state that's just, it's the only time I'm truly at peace. Yeah, I was going to say, know? it must be a good balance because I'm almost 100%, oh, a shiny object, gotta go, you know, I mean, I, like, I can't even, I can't even focus long enough to clean a room. I'll be just like, eh, there's something else I gotta do. It's just ridiculous. It's not that I'm lazy, it's just I want to do something else instantly. It's bizarre. Yes, yes. So yes. how did you get from, you know, doing Ed in Chicago and then coming out? Did you go to L.A. or did you go somewhere else? I was, I kind of fell into the Hollywood machine. I did a show... Uh, for Ed, an Ed show that was called, uh, that was the Chris Hogan show. It was a two-person, one-man show. I have it here. I have IMDb up just in case I forget something. News yeah. Weasels. And then, yeah, it, we, were, we were discovered by a talent scout and brought out to do a showcase in L.A. for all of these, you know, industry people. And we ended up signing with a huge agent, a huge um, management company, and a holding deal at NBC and made more money than I'd ever made in my life. <laughs> and uh, that kind of all started, we were flavor of the month and then that month was over and we were no longer flavor of the month. And, but luckily we were able to land this uh, silly job on uh, E uh, called news weasels. <laughs> How long was that on? Cause I don't recall that. It was one season and they really screwed up. Uh, they, it was a news show and it was a great idea. It was the two of us making fun of the news. Uh, but they thought they had bought the NBC News feed. They had not bought the whole feed. They had only bought the national feed, and all of the national feed is made up of local stories, local report, or much of it is made up of local reporters doing local stories at the affiliates. They did not own the rights to that. Oh. So we could not do any real news on a news show. I mean, it was during the um, uh, uh, O.J. Simpson uh, trial oh, and that's we prime doing, material i know and we were doing public domain stuff from australia oh <laughs> pain people just like what is this so yeah it didn't it didn't go well but it was great i, I loved doing it and uh, you know obviously i made the first money of my career really and it was fantastic i know i know chris hogan he went on to mad tv what like the next year right i want to say it was 95 <laughs> or 96 i was he was on a season of Mad TV, I think, and then he, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. I think that's right. So after the show, when he went over there, what were you, did, is that when you started jumping into like the Noah Baumbach movies? That's right. Yeah, Noah Baumbach uh, put me in his films, and I started writing. That's when I first started writing. I did a lot of writing for Noah, uh, a lot of ghost writing uh, for, a, for a pilot, I remember, that he did for ABC, and, I, and that's when I first started to like write. And and I and that that paid my bills for a while. I, I wrote a I sold a show to NBC uh, through David Schwimmer's company. Uh, I, I you know sold another show to Fox, and I, I I was starting to make a living as a writer. I didn't want to be staffed on a TV show because I really loved performing. So I was also doing acting at the same time and getting bit roles and 
scored a role on Friends, uh, and then and some others, and and then kind of landed a, a show called Jesse on NBC, which I just I, I watched that like hardcore when it was on. Uh, it's it's ridiculous. Four college guys in a dorm would make time in their life to sit down, watch Friends, and watch Jesse. It's ridiculous. Yeah. It's like not the most macho show, but yet for some reason, like no, we're not. I don't care what party's going on. I don't. There's no homework. We're gonna watch Friends. Absurd. Well, you were not alone. Uh, that show got huge ratings. Um, but you know, I think NBC sort of realized. You know, they, we were between Friends and Frasier, and I think NBC started to realize, hey. We could roll black screen between Friends and Frasier, and people would still watch it. Uh, so, so they 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 started to retool and 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 mess with the show. The show was really about Christina Applegate, and she did a great job. She was amazing. Uh, but they retooled the show and fired all of us after the first season and and recast it, which is common, you know. Yeah, I mean, well, NBC back then they had so many shows that were actually pretty good that they would waste. <laughs> I remember um, really liking Boston Common News Radio yeah. got shuffled around all the time. Yeah. There was yeah, it just you... seemed like every season they would have a potential hit. It would do fairly well in the ratings, but it wasn't enough for them, and they would yeah. cancel it. And here's a funny thing: is now they're so. Th those ratings would seem like the number one show on NBC compared to now. I love yeah. the shows that they're working with, you know, like Community, Parks and Rec, and Office. Those are risks. Those are huge risks yeah. to take on. But yeah. I bet you they kind of like, man, if we can only have those kind of shows and those kind of ratings I, still going. You know, that, I, that we, we hear that all the time. The, the numbers, the 10 items or less, was getting on TBS. TBS would jump for today, you know. But, and yeah, everything, the market is getting kind of diluted, which is, I think, good for artists. Yeah, it opens up a realm that was untapped before. You had to play strictly by network rules. There really wasn't any cable, and the stuff that was on cable was usually cheap syndicated stuff. Yeah. But um, by having, you know, Hulu and Netflix and, you know, streaming and, you know, all these cable networks, they have smaller budgets, true, but they give you creative freedom to try new things. I mean, That's even right. the difference between when you were on 10 times or less and going over to Quick Draw, the material can go a little edgier. It can go a little darker. It can be more experimental, and you still have your audience. Yes, absolutely. No question. There was, what was there one other thing I was going to say between Jesse? Oh, yeah. Um, there's a movie you did before, I want to say it was before Memron, but after Jesse, and it was called Humanoid. You're, po <laughs> you're, you're, you're put as a lead, but I can't find it anywhere. You will never find it. It never made it. the story, you know, doing independent film, that's kind of the story. Uh, that's a story. You know, you just you do a lot of things that just never make, never make the light of day. And um, Humanoid was one of those. Uh, David Schwimmer's company produced that. Um, it was this re outrageous kind of half comedy, half reality show. Probably do well today, but uh, yeah, it just it's sitting on a shelf somewhere. So it was it was it a TV movie or was it actually a full on film? It was a full on film. It was shot digitally, um, and it was you know fairly low budget, but you know, and it, it was a, sci a combination science fiction and a reality show. Oh, I'm so uh, bummed right now. I wanted uh, to see this. Yeah, yeah, it's a good. It was it was really cool. It it, it was really cool. It, oh. it you know uh, it's too bad, but what you know what can you say? Was it finished or is it just lost? <sighs> I don't. I. I I think it was finished, but I just don't think it. I don't know where it is. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I have a few pro projects like that. You yeah. Know? 
Uh, the one thing, though, right after that, though, you did Memron, and that's the thing that kind of, like, that was your thing. You and Nancy, like, really put this yeah. out, and it, I'm assuming this led to 10 yes. Items Less. Yeah, well, and Memron was really Nancy. I mean, Nancy wrote it, she directed it, she edited it, she shot it. I mean, she did everything. And, but that was really the project that the two of us, you know, fell in love, but art, artist-wise. <laughs> um and and just we were like oh my god we love doing this stuff <laughs> started to mess with what is yeah which is essentially what we do on quick draw today yeah um it won some on one slam dance and that notoriety combined with you know the work that nancy and i had both been doing separately uh led to us being able to pitch uh, that show around town and we sold it to sony uh, a show about a grocery store and that ended up you know being purchased by tbs and and that led to Quick Draw ultimately. Yeah, I love the fact that the shows are all available and anybody can watch it any time. I would love to see Memron added to Netflix or some sort of streaming service so other people can see it. It's actually a really great movie that um, yeah. I, th I think it, it, a lot of people are talking I about it. It's kind I of hard it to find out. Netflix. Yeah, Nancy said it is, but maybe it's not anymore. It, it's on disc, but I don't. Huh? I hardly know anybody who actually rents physical discs anymore. But I don't think it's streaming. I went looking for it. But um, I'm terrible at explaining the plot, so if you want to give the listeners just a brief description of what it is. It's a mockumentary of the Enron scandal, essentially. Uh, you know, but it's, it's this fictional company called Memron. <laughs> and uh, they all, all the people get fired, and it's what they do. You follow their process of how they dig up, dig the, the how, how, what happens after they all got fired. And it was perfect timing, too. It was one of those projects that's, like, of that moment, but it still stands today. But I, that's one of those like one of those movies, like, I feel like should be available everywhere. Totally. I, I agree. I can't believe it's on Netflix. I'm, I'm going to look into that because we thought it was being streamed on Netflix. Well, so, uh, if I'm wrong, I apologize. If it is on no, Netflix, I, go watch I hope, it. I hope you're wrong, but if, it's, if you're right, well, we're going to get on it. Um, so, do you have any other outside of Quick Draw? Do you have any other like movie ideas? You, I mean, are you planning on making a movie or doing another series? Uh, you know, could you intermixing? No film ideas right now. Uh, we we do have two series projects that we are currently pitching. Our agents are like, we don't care about if Quick Draw gets picked up. You have to be constantly selling. So they've been pushing us and so we're we're about we're pitching right now two projects that i i can't talk i'm not supposed to talk oh no about. i know it's fine <laughs> um we're in the sales version you know of it all i love the fact that you have the youtube series where you actually show how you make a pitch how you make yes. an, a pilot episode it, it's almost crucial for anybody who wants to go into film to watch this i almost feel like it should be required to view in film school <laughs> like uh, like even kids like 12 year olds and 13 year olds uh, that's the great thing about the world now is that a 12-year-old can literally have the possibility, no matter how much money they have, it, it's, not a, it's not a rich person game anymore. It's anybody who has a creative idea, grab a camera and do what you can do, post on yes. YouTube. Our advice to everybody is just shoot, shoot. If, you, if, you're, if you're wanting to break into this, just go out and shoot something. That's the first step. Uh, understand how this stuff is made, you know? All right, I think I think we've covered pretty much everything. Is there anything else you want to throw out there? You know, the uh, I, nothing I can really think of. the 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 main thing, the the main message that uh, the biggest question I get is, how do we see uh, Quick Draw for free? Which I think we already discussed. But yeah, you can watch Quick Draw for free if you watch it on your uh, on your laptop. 
browser. And you know? can binge watch it too. That's the, that's yeah. great because it's like you, but well, you didn't do them all right in a row like the way Netflix does, right? You were doing uh, still weekly, but once the season ends, you can watch it all at once. That's right. We release them weekly. Hulu chose to release them weekly, and then once they're all released, they're all there. So right now. All of season one, all of season two are available to viewers. The funny thing is, if this was a few years ago and I was doing this interview uh, after the season was over, it wouldn't be that helpful. But now that you can watch it any time, there really is no season end. It may be the season finale, but you can watch it whenever you want. In a lot of ways, right now is the biggest part because now they're all available. So this is when really the, the heat is on uh, in terms of marketing and, and publicity to let people know, hey, you, it's here. They've all dropped. All right, I'm very, very eager. I'm really hoping there's a season three. There is kind of a wrap-up to season two, just in case. <laughs> yeah. But there's, I mean, just stunned. There's so many character developments, and people live and die, and there's a great adventure and comedy. It's one of those things that, like, I don't watch TV anymore. There's very little <laughs> that excites me, and this is one of those shows that just drawed me in. And I looked, and I was like, oh, I've been sitting here for four hours. I'm completely done. This is amazing. <laughs> Where'd my day go? <laughs> But I don't regret it one bit. Well, thank you. That means so much to us. I mean, we, we, we make this show for people to see, you know? And so that, that's the reason we do it. So we love uh, hearing what people think of the show, you know? That's a big part of why we do it. All right. Well, thank you very much. Well, thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. All righty. Everybody, that's it for our episode. Have a good night. Welcome, everybody, to another great episode of Retro Rocket Entertainment. This episode will be interviewing actor Bob Clendenden. I say it wrong every time, don't I? Uh, it's okay. It's the, it's the second syllable. Clendenden. Did I get it right? Yeah, it's perfect. You know, it's funny. Is I actually tried to rehearse that and get it right. How many times has that happened to you? Uh, it, it happens pretty regularly. And then I start getting mailed to either Glenn, you know, as if Glenn was my first name or yeah there's all sorts of ways to screw it up so i apologize for that there was yeah. actually a moment when i was rehearsing the first time and i think i nearly said rhododendron <laughs> <laughs> i wish i'd talked to you before that'd be a great stage name <laughs> I, you wouldn't have to worry about competition i suppose i don't think so except in the yeah yeah a certain circuit probably so how are you doing uh, i'm very good how are you all right how excited Thanks. are you for the new season of cougar town well, I'm sorry, sorry, say that again? The new season of Cougar Town premiering this month. Uh, yes, we just started. I think they've aired three episodes, three of the 13 so far. Um, and I think they've been very good. Now, is this going to be the final season? Yep, it's officially the final. And we knew it going in that this was our last our last gasp. Okay. And you know what's funny is I started watching the show when it first aired. And I, I would see like guest appearances here and there. And I left for a while and I started to catch up. And I was like, whoa, wait, you're a regular now. When did that happen? Uh, about the time we moved from ABC to TBS. So that was the between the third and the fourth seasons. Okay. And so this is from Bill Lawrence, correct? He, did, he also created um, Spin City and Scrubs. That's correct, and I met him on Scrubs because I was a guest star on a couple episodes of Scrubs, which I loved, and he's one of those guys that's super um, loyal to people that he likes working with, and so you see a lot of the same faces, uh, not just in the cast, but in the crew, so a lot of the, a lot of the Scrubs uh, crew came over to Cougar Town, and then some of them split off to do some of Bill's new shows, you know, he's got a couple other shows on TBS, and some of the networks, and but it's you, uh, you see all the same people a lot of the time. 
Yeah, and I noticed that a lot of stuff in your IMD. By the way, I usually when I do interviews, I try to catch every single thing that I can for the person I'm interviewing. Right. I think it would take me roughly a year to get through your entire <laughs> resume. I don't think there is anybody working as much as you are. It's, uh, that's very kind. I appreciate that. It's a lot, man. There's a lot of bad stuff on there. I, I don't think I'd put you through it to make you watch all of that. Well, I just got done watching, and I only made it about five minutes in to see what I needed to see. Was the very first episode of Renegade. Oh my God! How did you find that? <laughs> oh, it's not the entire series is up on Hulu. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so I think I was a, a prison guard, wasn't I? Right. Yeah, you have one line at the beginning of it, and then that was it. Yep. I was like, moving on. There we go. There's. <laughs> I don't need to see how this pans out. <laughs> Um, you know, that's a great thing is a lot of the shows that you have are available on Hulu. So, I mean, that's how I discovered Quick Draw and then went back and watched Ten Items or Less again. Oh, great. You know, and that's, oh, that's it, it's changed the way TV is now. There's so much stuff available. You know, it used to be just like the main four networks. And then, of course, cable started kicking in and now we have all this Internet stuff. So it gives a lot of these series that might not get picked up by a network uh, an audience and, and it get, develops like a cult following. That's absolutely, and it's happening all over the time, and the and the, um, and the ability for people to make their own content and then have a, a you know a, some kind of delivery system for it is you know unprecedented, which is amazing. So you're seeing some really creative things coming out of nowhere. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of Quick Draw, and I'm really wondering. I think a lot of the fans are wondering. Have you heard anything about season three yet? It's not going to happen either. Uh, we're very disappointed, but Hulu has decided, I think, to go in a slightly different direction, uh, and so we are going to have to call it a day on the, with the two seasons of Quick Draw. Okay. Well, you know, I guess, in a way, you could be happy that the fact that they, it exists. Something like this, you know, 10 years ago probably yeah. would never even get made, but, you know, the field is open now to all these experimental shows. But I think that's a good example of those of what you were just talking about. One of those shows that develops a very, very devoted, um, you know, an ardent following. Because there was, I, I really don't think there was any other show like it uh, out there. Um, nothing even close. Not, not just the improvisational aspect of it, but the fact that we were trying to do it with a period western. Um, and and uh, you know, I don't think there's anything that, that that rivals it. So I was really sorry to see that go because you know those the unique shows. Uh, it's nice to hang on to. Right. Both shows that you did with John and Nancy, uh, 10 items less previously, um, you know, both of them are kind of short-lived, but if you kind of look at the way cable runs or the way the BBC runs, they tend to do shows in short chunks and people are completely satisfied. So at least we have the satisfaction of knowing the show never like stayed too long, you know, jump the shark and be like, Ooh, maybe they should have wrapped it up last season. Right, seriously. I mean, you got other shows, you know, from the '80s to '90s that ended up doing 200 episodes, and I, you, you just how do you not run out of gas after about, you know, 80? It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So I mean, if you could be just like another series next time, you know, with a whole new concept but the same kind of feel, that way you feel like you're still getting that same kind of show. Like it's just changed its setting. <laughs> Exactly right, and and those guys and I, John and Nancy are two people I love working with, and will hopefully continue to. And they're just constantly, you know, um, reinventing new ideas and and um, and finding new you know venues for John. Uh, and I adore working with those people. Um, it's a little scary because it's not like anything else that I do, but uh, but it's you know super rewarding. Now, is improv something that you studied in school? I didn't study it. I was part of a uh, an improv troupe when I was an undergrad, uh, just because I needed. Sort of, I was an engineer, and I so I needed some kind of outlet. 
Uh, and so I fell in with a bunch of people and we started this improv group. Um, and so I did it for a number of years, but I didn't do really much of anything when I got to Los Angeles. Like I didn't join the, uh, the Groundlings or Second City or UCB or any of those places. Um, but I, you know, I luckily fell in with John and Nancy and that sort of kept me, kept the, you know, me relatively sharp. So did you graduate in engineering? I did, but with a, a, a very unimpressive GPA. <laughs> Did you ever actually attempt it before going into uh, acting? It worked, I went straight from um, undergrad to a graduate uh, acting program because, you know, I sort of started acting in undergrad and I really liked it. I didn't know if I was any good at it, uh, but I liked the people and I thought I'd give it a shot. And then I ended up um, auditioning for a grad program and got in. And so I went to Penn State for graduate school. Uh, so fortunately for everybody, I did not work as an engineer. <laughs> Um, so, um, did you go directly to LA after graduating? Uh, no, I did some pretty bad regional theater. I did one um, very memorable touring production of a uh, children's show called The Nose, where I was literally the nose, and I so I had this enormous styrofoam, you know, uh, thing nose that I, you know, my arm stuck out of the side of it, my head came out was like a cutout face. It was just the most degrading thing ever. And then we, we toured uh, junior highs and high schools in Pennsylvania with this production. Um, and I think it was some, it was, it was good for me because it really pegged me down. You really, you know, um, when you're pound into the dirt by junior high school students, <laughs> you, you know, it does a nice number on your ego and it gets you back down to where you're supposed to be. And then I, after that, I did a couple other things and then went to LA. Yeah, I think uh, my, I, my I actually gave up on acting completely after I was in a play where I was dressed in a very heavy, very very hot pterodactyl suit and had, <laughs> a, and had to belt out numbers to elementary school students. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I think I like the technical aspect of this more than I do the you know the acting part. So that was it for me. Oh, uh, that's too funny. But so after you got to LA, was it? It seems like it might have been a while between your graduation and the first episode of Redding Game. So were you doing theater and commercials or anything? I didn't, no, I didn't do any commercials. Like uh, There was a, probably a, two, a year to two years of just all that horrible letter writing, sending out headshots and resumes, trying to get an agent, doing a couple of plays, uh, signing up to do a play, and, the fall, you know, and then it, that falls through. Um, just the scramble that happens. And that was about, I guess, two years for me before I sort of got a nibble. Um, I got an agent that wasn't even in Los Angeles. She was sort of between LA and San Diego. Um, but she represented I mean, She handled a bunch of those um, shows that were shooting down in San Diego, like Silk Stockings and Renegade. And there, um, Stu Siegel had a studio down there and was doing a bunch of shows. And so she would send her clients down there as local hires in san diego which was fine it was a good way to get in the door it just meant you didn't they didn't pay for your travel or put you up anywhere but if you're willing to you know bite it and take that cost on yourself you could work down in san diego and then just sort of commute back and forth and so that's how i got the renegade job okay and uh, um, after that um that kind of became you, you did a lot more drama in the beginning I, I feel like you don't do a whole lot of it now it's more comedy oriented but I was looking at a lot of the stuff you did you would mix up some comedy but mix in a lot of drama as well do you kind of miss that heavy I, that's a great question yeah I do actually miss it I think I've sort of fallen into the comedy basket a little more heavily but I would love to be doing more hour long 
episodics, you know, um, whatever creepy, weird, you know, person needs to show up um, in hour longs. I would love to get back to that. Uh, and I actually think it helps you do uh, as a comedian, you know, uh, as a comedic actor to be doing a lot more um, straight stuff as well. Because it kind of levels out that balance so you don't go too far in one direction and then you forget what yeah. it's like to keep. The thing I, the, that I appreciate about your roles is a lot of this stuff could be one note. You know, it's um, right. in general, you kind of, you, I mean, I don't, don't want to say you get typecast, but there is a certain type of person. Uh, I don't want to say creepy, but it always seems like a person who's kind of uncomfortable and awkward. Yes, but you take these exactly characters and, and you give them a lot of dimension and humanity so that they don't come out just like as a generic character. Uh, thank you. That's very compliment. Uh, that's a great compliment. Um, yeah, I think that is the case. And, and but the danger is sometimes, or I think, and I think I don't think typecast is a bad word anymore. I think it, it sort of has for or had a negative connotation for a long time. But uh, I think for actors who um, have had careers that go on for quite a while, the 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 common thread is that they find they know how they are perceived and they find what they do really well and they sort of work within that that bubble, you know and um. And I think with me, the, those socially awkward, um, sort of fish-out-of-water types is what I've um, gravitated towards, and I think I do you know, fairly well. Um, and I'm really happy because, like you said, there's so much variety within that um, that it, you, know, you don't get bored or complacent, um, and you, know, you can still have, still have everything you want. Um, yeah. well, the challenge, you... though, is still finding ways to sort of stretch yourself so you don't end up doing your one or two tricks uh you know every time it's like oh this i just trot out this this thing again um and it gets tired and stale and you get bored then you start phoning it in which uh, luckily totally. I, I, have, I haven't seen you do yet no i'm sure but there's still potential for that so <laughs> keep you know don't count me out i'm sure i can well let's just hope that you know there's always something interesting to do um you know and the funny thing is i was looking at you know i i didn't even notice it until now one of the very first things that uh I had seen you in where I really like who, who is that guy was that 70s show when you oh, played, yeah. yeah and I think a lot of people remember you from that role I know you had done an arc on the practice before that but it was for some reason if you look up your name on online it seems like 50% yeah. of it attaches that 70s show Earl to it yeah I think also because that 70s show's got such a um, kind of a crazy following and they air them so much with the syndication. So it's, it's constantly being shown somewhere and it's got really, really devoted people who, um, who watch the series over and over again. And was it that that kind of led to the, like the, the constant stream of guest appearances or do you think it started kicking in with private practice? Uh, I don't think, I think it started a little before that with, um, like Caroline in the city. I did a bunch of, um, playing sort of a, a, weird offbeat mailman and i sort of it was but again it was one of those shows where i went on one episode but it was it turned into five or six um just because that's the way a lot of um tv half hour tv works is that you know when they find somebody that they kind of like the way they fit in with the regulars they'll start writing new episodes for them or incorporating them in, in more storylines um and that's Fortunately, it's been something that's happened to me a lot. You know, I come in for one episode, but it turns into multiples. And like in the case of Cougar Town, it actually turns into a regular gig. Well, I would say probably also it has to do with work ethic, too. I mean, I imagine you're someone that 
you know, does everything that needs to be done and you're reliable and, you know, when you bring your work, you, you come through for the people or they won't keep asking you back. That's that's a big thing, especially when you're sort of at my lower level, you know, you, you can't get away with too much bad behavior, uh, at least not early on, you know. Um, so, if, yeah, if you show up and you're professional and you do your, what they want of you, um, that's one headache they're not going to have. If uh, So they like to keep those people around. I, I apologize. Earlier I said private practice, but I meant the practice. I don't know why I said <laughs> that. <laughs> um, so for the most part, it's TV, but do you like, would you prefer movies or TV? Because I know you've done a couple I, dozen movies, too. I, I have. I really like, uh, I like TV. A, I like being in Los Angeles because i got a family. And a lot of uh, feature stuff pulls you out, um, you know, on location and stuff. Um, I do. I like uh, the idea of working on something like a feature where you've got weeks to 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 do something um, is really appealing because it's getting closer to that sort of theater model where you actually are kind of um, crafting a character. Um, it, in a lot of TV, you're you're looked at to come in with a finished performance, so there's not a lot of um, experimenting that goes on, because uh, you know just the time constraints. They what they saw you do in the audition room, they want you to do um, on set. So you show up and you do exactly what you did, because uh, they like that and they don't want a lot of you know rethinking of it. That's just waste time. Um, so yeah, so there's, there's I do miss some stuff with with features, but I like. I also like with TV that, uh, especially if you are lucky enough to do multiple stuff or become a regular, you get to know everybody, including the crew. You know, everybody becomes very, very much a family, um, and, and I love that aspect. Uh, it's hard sometimes with features, you know, if you, especially if you're day playing and you go in, um, you've only got three or four days, you don't really know anybody, you're a little nervous about how it's all going to pan out, you don't know what the personalities are, so you do your thing, but you don't really get feel like you get real close to anybody. Yeah, it always seems like with TV, I mean, I love movies, but there's always something special about TV because you get to spend so much time with them that it's yeah. like, oh, it sounds odd to say, but it feels like a family. And when, like, you know, the show canceled is canceled, I'd be like, oh, no, how am I going to see these people again? It's right. a weird thing. And I, I don't think I'm alone in that. I don't think you are either. I mean, I think you, get, you feel very, very, very close. And, you know, it happens all the time where people, um, they, they stop sort of separating you from your character. So... Um, you know, you meet people in public and they don't realize that this, that was all scripted. You know, I'm not, you know, I'm very close to a lot of the people I play, but like, I think there are other actors. It's like, wait, wait, you don't, don't confuse what you saw last Thursday with, you know, who I am. Right. Especially if it's like, well, I mean, each week you could play something totally different. You could play a killer. Then you could play like the goofy plumber next door. Right. And right. the funny, some people are identified by one character, and then there's the kind of actor that's considered like that guy. You're that guy in that thing. Right. I'm that guy in that thing. But you know, somebody like Courtney, for example, like the way that people, um, you know, through her, uh, what was it, ten years on Friends, they became so uh, those those six actors became such a part of the you know uh, American landscape, the viewing landscape that like people really really felt they. They, they knew those people, and, you know, if, so, if a character did something, you know, whether Ross wasn't supposed to, they didn't want to see him with Rachel, you know, people really got up in arms, because it was, you know, it was part of their daily life. I, I do remember, um, we, we would watch it as a group in college, and I remember the British episode where he said, uh, he said the wrong name when he was proposing to her, and I, like, <laughs> we all lost our minds, like it was our best friend that had just said that, and we all talked about it, like, wait, this is a TV show, we don't, these people aren't real. 
<laughs> but that's the way TV affects you. I think TV affects you, um, especially if you get to spend a lot of time with these people, yeah. uh, differently than movies will. Because sometimes, unless it's a big franchise, you know, you're kind of like one and done. Right. And you know, with your you you kind of have a thing with yes, you have your guest appearances, but you seem to have a good uh, chunk of reoccurring characters. So you get to come back, maybe not right in a row, but you come back like once a season, and it's right. like you get to see your old friends and hang out with them again. Right. Small doses. <laughs> well, it must feel comfortable though that you are now a regular on at least three series in the last few years. Yeah, that is that is great. But I mean, I like like um, like uh, Scrubs was a good example where there I would sometimes do one or two episodes a season, and then I dis- Zeltzer would di- disappear and come back, you know, a season later with some really really freaky stuff, and then you know then he disappear. And I actually, uh, uh, you know, I love that um, just sort of popping in and out. Yeah, I think it's funny how uh, in the beginning your character just kind of has like a one-liner where he's like, oh, you think I'm a good doctor? You know, that kind of thing. And then by the end of the series, you know, he's gone full like, hey, you want to join us? Me and my wife are swingers. And we're like, whoa, what? <laughs> Threesome in the woods. I know. Uh, it was, I, I actually love that show. That was, I think, one of the smartest shows uh, ever on TV. Well, it's why he keeps working. He keeps pulling out yeah. these shows that people really like. Yeah, he does. He's, he's, quite, a, he's quite amazing. We actually had the... Um, Cougartown rap party last night, which was quite uh, um, quite an event because they they tried to get as many people who had ever been you know working on the show, and there were I mean hundreds of people because over the six years we've gone through a lot of crew and a lot of cast changes and stuff like that. So it was really really a fun night. But Bill spoke, and I uh, I just adore that guy. Now this is a this is like a fan question here, and and, and I'm the fan. Uh, I've yeah. always wanted to know ten items or less. In your head, do you go beyond the end of the characters? Do you and Yolanda get together? <laughs> Start a tube top company? Well, oh, it's, how, wouldn't that be great? How much, how much fun would that be, a tube top company with Yolanda? <laughs> um, you know, with, our, with raising the child, I'm sure that um, we had some in, interaction in, uh, as, uh, after the series ended, but I, don't th- I think Yolanda would just eat up Carl and spit him out. <laughs> Yeah, I remember when I first heard that, I was like, wait, what? And you guys had a kid together, you know, just like one of those things, like, you know what, that actually makes sense. I mean, it's like perfect for the show. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen her for a long time. I, I thought she was great on the show. Yeah, that's that was one of those shows where I don't get to see that cast enough. And I was like, everybody in it is really talented. And, I mean, of course, you and John, you know, both regular on uh, Quick Draw. And I was like, oh, it's so good to see them yeah. together again. But I'm like, where are the rest of the people? And I'm, I'm sure they're all working. It's just I, I just haven't caught them. So I'm there are curious. a couple of oh, showed up on Quick Draw. Like David Hoffman uh, was in Ten Times or Less. Oh, Tim Bagley, if you remember. I don't know if you know Tim Bagley. He played the um, the mayor in Quick Draw, and he was the um, uh, worked in the rival supermarket in Ten Times or Less. He's a great, great improviser from the groundlings and he he's been on both shows so they used to they used to you know uh, quite a few people in both again like we were talking about earlier because they know especially with the shows like that that are improvised you know they know their work they know how they that they interact well that they play well with others and so they try to use a lot of the same people yeah about 10 years ago i actually almost took a class with him he was teaching an improv oh. class and i just i got chicken and i didn't do it <laughs> Where was that? Was that in L.A.? Or was yeah, that it was in L.A. I was living in Indiana at the time, but my family had moved out to California. So I was like, hmm, should I wow. move out there? And you know, and then I eventually moved out, but I had missed the date or whatever, and I kind of moved on. But you lost, yeah, you lost, you lost your, the wind in your sail? 
Yeah. So you're from Ohio, correct? Uh, not really. I I was born there because my father was working there straight uh, out of um out of college, but we were only there for about a year before he then went to Boston to go to graduate school. Oh, okay. I was just so, curious because I was born right on the edge of Ohio and Indiana. Oh, is that right? Yeah. I still know. I, I, that little, I think I'm from a very small town in Ohio called Newark, but I've never been back since. Yeah, I would say it's probably, well, I don't know. I'm not going to badmouth Ohio and Indiana, but there's a reason why I left. <laughs> <laughs> no, did you go to, col- did you go to college? Uh, yeah, I, uh, I went to Vincennes University, and I was going to go to IU, but um, I don't know. For something, I, just, I was itching to get out and do something else. I, I kind of regret not finishing school. But yeah. I just I just want to go on to other adventures. I'm not it's not I'm not the kind of person that can just sit there and read books and uh, and that makes me sound really ignorant. But um, it's not that I can't learn. It's just for something about being stuck in a chair, just reading and reading and reading. When I'm gonna go out there and have adventures. Yeah. And I like agree. like my degree is in theater, but my father was like business, do business, you'll have a career in business. And I was Be like, stable. but it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, stability is overrated. But yeah, uh, other than that, you know, I just decided, you know, Indiana, I, I've had enough years of you. I'm going to come out to California. Now I'm up in Oregon in Portland. Oh, are you really? I yeah. love Portland. Yeah, and it's just like, you know, and when I'm done with this adventure, I'll go on to another adventure. It's the kind of life that I, I think I, my problem is, is that I read On the Road when I was younger, and it just gave me yeah. that kind of wanderlust. Kerouac will do that to you, and then suddenly you can't recover. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think, sometimes I think about it, and I go, Man, how many places have I lived? I should probably settle down. I'm almost forty, and I'm like, ooh, uh, how many? I can count like I'm like up in the dozens of places I've lived in my life. I'm like, yeah, maybe I want to settle down someday. No, no, no. I would not be in a hurry to do that. Yeah, life is an adventure, and um, the fun, that's the cool thing about like acting is you get to go all over the world. I mean, yes, you you stick primarily to LA because you have a family, but like you said, you get to do movies. It's like a vacation, but you're getting paid to do the vacation. Yeah, it's exactly right. But it's a really, it's kind of a surreal existence because you get so close to people for a really short period of time, and then you just blow apart and very often never see these people again. So like it's, and same with the you know theater actors. You know, you do a show and you're in rehearsal, you're uh, uh, in performance. You know, over the course of it, maybe eight weeks, and because there's so much, you know, you're personally invested in it. it means a great deal, but then it just disappears. So it's like you have this family, and then you don't have a family, and then you pick a new family because you just got cast in another play. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, I used to say, like, oh, yeah, I'll write you, you know, and then you never get yeah. around to writing. At yeah. least we have social media now where we can just, like, hit friend, and then, like, they get to see your update. You can write to 3,000 people with one note instead yeah. of, like, each individual letter. That's exactly right. You, know, you still feel some sort of connection. But, like, I'm starting to worry about some of my social media. Like, I think you you, get, you start to uh, think that you're sort of more involved in people's lives than you really are because you're seeing their daily happenings, but there's there's not that interaction. Um, so sometimes I worry that, like, I think I'm keeping up with my friendships when I'm really not. Yeah, it's like some people are like, how come you never go on Facebook? I was like, well, I read your updates all the time, and then you realize you're a lurker. You're, you're a Facebook creeper, you know? You just kind of watch what yeah. they're doing, but you're not, a, like, partaking in it. Right, and simply hitting like occasionally isn't the same as, you know, going out and having a beer with somebody. Right, the whole definition of friends has changed. Like, you'll say, oh, yeah, I'm friends with that guy, but you've never met this person. Not really, exactly. And you yeah. barely had any correspondence, so it's, it's kind of a weird place that our society sits at. Which kind of concerns me because, like, my generation, 
we still played outside, we interacted, we wrote letters to each other, and of course that's kind of faded away. But what is it like for the kids now who, once they're out of school, what is is it like for them? Like the interaction must be kind of odd. What they Uh, consider to be like best friends. Like, yeah, we text each other all the time. Well, when's the last time you saw them? I don't know, three years ago? That's That's a strange thing to say. It's a very strange thing to say, and I, and I th- but I think that's the dr- now. What I'm curious about is whether the pendulum's going to start swinging back. Like, um, are people going to realize that we did sort of calcify ourselves with the, uh, with social media, and then and miss the that human inter- interaction, and so social media will start to, will start to see you know the next generation starting to become more and more uh, involved, you know, personally and physically with each other. Uh, or is it just going to continue in the trend that's going? So I don't really know. Yeah, but I, I, would, I would say for most things, though, they do have every uh, current trend. Once it gets too big, it always kind of flips and goes the yeah. opposite direction. I mean, you see that with movies and music and stuff like that. But social, uh, like what our interactions, don't seem to flip back the way they used to be. Now, here's the weird thing: is in Portland, I don't know if it's this way in LA. In Portland, it's I mean, it was a joke on Portlandia that I'm kind of stealing. But it's yeah. basically a hundred years ago. There are chunks of Portland where you walk out in the street and you're like, everybody's dressed like they're from the 1900s. You know, they all look like mustache peats and they're dressed yeah. in their vests and stuff like that and their waxed hair. And it's yeah. like, wait, where did I? Where am I again? And literally driving a big wheelie bicycle down the street. Or a unicycle. Or a unicycle, right? If your big wheelie's in the shop, I guess you take the unicycle out. Yeah, I don't, is it like that at all? Is that trend picking up yeah. in L.A.? You're just, you're, this is we're really sort of talking about the hipster trend. Yeah, I mean it's basically. I, I don't want to say it's it's a little condescending to say hipster, but some right. of it is. Um, I don't like things that are ironic just to be ironic. I like right. things like say you like Mr. T because when you were a kid you thought Mr. T was the coolest thing on the planet, and right. you have a Mr. T shirt. That's fine. But if you think it's like, dude, Mr. T, so lame, I'm gonna get that shirt because it's awesome. That's the kind of ironic that I don't care for, and that does kind of leak into the culture of. Portland, but we're so earnest that most of the time, I mean, like almost painfully earnest, that um, that you're like, you know what, you authentically like My Little Pony. I can totally, I, I'm, I'll get behind that because at least you really like it. Yes. And, right. Yeah. I'm we, a huge fan of Kool Aid. I really, really am a huge fan of Kool Aid. I love. Was is the Kool Aid where the guy bursts through the wall? Uh, was that Hawaiian Punch? No, that was Hawaiian Punch. Kool Aid was actually the jugs that had smiley faces on them. Oh, okay, okay. Like a pitcher, like a glass pit, like a pitcher with a smiley face, I think. Right. Do you remember getting those packets for like twenty nine cents? Like you'd find them oh, everywhere yeah. in the grocery store. I haven't seen a packet in years. And did you just did you ever just shoot the pa- packet straight? Oh dear God, no! Why? Have you? <laughs> it's like pop rocks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, did you get sick? Uh, you don't need to do it more than once. Yeah. I think it was on the dare. I've like done pop part. rocks, and I was like, oh, my stomach hurts so much. Yeah, it's amazing that we actually survived through some of that. Oh, yeah. I ran around with guns that looked real. Oh, they, sure. I mean, they were full-size Uzis, and I look back on that going, how are we not all dead? Yeah, it's crazy. And then, and then you know, and you stayed out until the streetlights came on, and then you had to sort of want, find your way back home. Maybe you had a dime in your pocket in case you had to make a phone call. Yeah, we didn't have a cell phone. No way. <laughs> And our game yeah. system was it like an Atari or a Nintendo, and then you're like, eh, I'm good, I'm going to go outside and run around for a while. My parents were like, you know, I'm not too worried where he is, even though we could be miles away from home. Right, 
Exactly. Riding a sled down some huge hill, you know, some rocky cliff face because you just found a piece of cardboard. Oh, we we went so hardcore with our sleds. We would cover them with WD-40 and shoot down <laughs> the icy hills to the fact where we were like, our wind, our faces were flapping in the wind, and we're like, we're going to die! We're going to die. <laughs> See? But we, made but we it. loved it. <laughs> I think we went a little bit off topic, but it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice. Nice to reminisce. But but like coming back to the social media thing, like it's weird seeing it now with because I got young uh, kids seeing it through their eyes and the world that they're gonna end up looking at. Um, you know, not to mention just the other aspects of like bullying now can enter your house because it's you know no longer are you safe to just shut the door and be you know safe from the bullies. Now like now they can come at you through your screen. Yeah, I can't imagine what it's like for kids these days to deal with the yeah. fact that i mean i got bullied really hard in high school like i was brutal and yeah. i was just like at least at home i have that that sanctity but now it's like you know you dig into facebook or just a text message someone somehow gets your phone number and you're like oh now i have to go get a new phone i gotta deal with this nonsense yeah exactly now with you know you being an actor and you know your kids probably seeing that do they ever think that they how do you put that? Uh, like the Hollywood lifestyle can sometimes be tempting. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm assuming you seem like the kind of guy that would keep it like down to earth and realistic. Like this is a job. I mean, yes, it's a skilled job that I love doing, but it's still a job. It's not like a passage to a whole new universe outside of normal reality. Right. And I don't like, I'm not really part of the, that other, the Hollywood Hollywood. Like I do my job and then I come back to my little suburban house and coach little league and, I'm on the PTA and stuff like that. So, like, I try to be uh, a normal, normal person. Um, with the boys, like, I think, sometimes I think, especially my older son, kind of digs it when I get recognized. When we're out in public at the grocery store or something, and somebody comes up and says something nice or gives me a compliment, I think he really likes that in a way that worries me uh, because I don't want him coveting that sort of, it's not celebrity, but it's it's just sort of ego-stroking. yeah. If he wanted to act in a school play because he has that urge, I would have no problem with it. But if he starts liking the just the idea of being famous or known, I kind of want to squash that. Have they talked about acting? Uh, not really. Like, I've brought them to set a couple times, and they love just sort of the energy, and people are always super nice to them, and they love the fact that there's craft service that they can get any kind <laughs> of donut or Twizzler whenever they want it. Um, but uh, they have not really expressed a real interest in doing anything yet and so i'm not i'm certainly not pushing anything yeah i was gonna say i think the appeal of movie making sometimes gets squashed when you realize that a lot of it's sitting and waiting you're ready but then you they're not ready for you so it takes a lot of patience and i think that kind of like some people are like oh i thought this is a fast moving kind of thing and just like get kind of bored with it i mean i have a very short attention span i don't know if i could sit there like theater was amazing like, just like, you know, lightning, just go, 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 constant, you know. I mean, yes, there is the repetition of the same play over and over. But once you get it down, there's no, like, we got to set up the lights and we got to wait for the sun to be right. Right. And you got, I mean, literally on a film shoot, you've got uh, a full day, 16 hours is spent doing three and a half pages of a script. Well, with the TV shows, you move a lot faster, though, right? Uh, generally about maybe eight eight to nine pages, but yeah, I mean, still that's a lot of repetition. It's a lot of doing the same thing over and over again from different angles and, you know, different coverage. So it's not, 
It's not uh, what I think people perceive. When they come to the set, they're a little surprised at how mundane it, it becomes really quick. What keeps you from getting bored? Um, I, everybody's got different sort of um, things. As, a, as an actor, I try to find um, you know different levels. I try to experiment with different things, to listen differently, to you know um, keep myself interested that way and also give them sort of some options. Um, and then, like, I'm, I still... In my off time, like offset, I'm still holding on a little bit to the engineering nerd that I was. Like, I do a lot of math um, puzzles and sort of like I'm really into Ken Ken. I don't know if anybody's doing Ken Ken, but like it's a super goofy math nerdy kind of thing that I like doing that passes the time for me. I have no idea what that is. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, what Sudoku was? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like that, but sort of on steroids a little bit. Oh, okay. And um, I, I was reading somewhere that you were you doing a lot of sports. I don't do. I mean, I'm not. You can tell by the way I look. I'm not particularly athletic. I mean, I like uh, I, I like participating. I was playing softball for a while in an old man softball league, and like I said, I coached my little my son's uh, little league team. Um, uh, and I played. I uh, I was a very avid pool player in college, and I still try and keep that up. Yeah, I think I've always believed that working out, I'm kind of like strict with my regiment. Yeah. It's a good way to control the stress and keep your mind clear. It seems kind of crazy because a lot of times you're like, ah! you know, you're, right. you know, but it's something about it. Just like you sleep better. It, it keeps you healthy and it clears the mind of like anger and stress. And I can, I can see like acting being like one of those things where like, you know what? This day didn't go right. I need to just go jog, just jog and get this out of me. And then you're back to where you need to be. Right. And uh, it's interesting because you also see that er, er, all these actors are sort of different in their methodology. Like, I don't, I'm certainly not a method person. And so when a scene is done, I'm, I'm done, you know, and leading up to it, I'm, I'm me until we generally until we start rolling. But you need to be respectful of other actors who like, um, really immerse themselves and don't want to have small talk between takes and don't want to be taken out of their zone. So you kind of try and get a read on, on, on different people and how they like to, um, how they like to work and not interfere with it. Yeah. The first time that ever happened to me where the person refused to get out of character, like they wanted to be referred to as the, the person they were playing. I remember that right. first time I was, I was young and I was being like smug about it and everything. I was like, this guy's ridiculous. And right. I, I wasn't respecting how he approached the situation. We all do things differently, and uh, I regret doing that. And I just, you know, some people can just pick up the character and leave it, and some yeah. people just kind of take it home with them. Have you ever walked home with the character realizing, oh, wait, hold on a second, I'm still being this person? Uh, you know, there's so many elements of, like, um, like these weird people that I play in me anyway that there's I'm never going to escape it totally. Um but yeah, sometimes I, I go into like uh, like sp lurker, weirder, creepy guy mode, and my wife's got to go, uh, you need to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> um, yeah, I was just saying, the one thing that I always regret is when I was like, I was doing a play, and um, the, the character's supposed to be kind of disconnected, and uh -huh. I, I look back on it now, and I reflect, and I go, oh, I was basically playing Arnold Schwarzenegger in the first Terminator. Like, look at, just, like, staring, like, trying to like, make my skull bulge out of my skin. Oh, and my I God. must have made everybody uncomfortable. <laughs> That's great, though. That's a great story. Wait, was that in college? Was that in a play? Or was no, that... uh, it was when I was a kid. That was the very first. It was right after Terminator 2 came out. Yeah. And 
I just remember walking around town in character, just like staring at people. Like I was just going to, like I was scanning their data with my eyes. And I was like, this is ridiculous. You should probably stop doing this. I'm glad you didn't have one of your toy guns with you too. Yeah. I, mean, I only acted a few times, but then I realized on the last time, my character, I don't know if you've ever heard of a play, um, Lend Me a Tenor. Yeah, sure. Um, so I played the old man. And for the whole thing, I'm basically screaming. And by the time I was done, I had a nervous breakdown and ulcer. And I was like, yeah, I can't. Oh, my God. Really? <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, I think I like the gadget part. You know, I like working with sound and lights. Sure. But, I mean, life changes. And sometimes you do other things. Like, uh, I'm not going to say a whole lot about it. But I, I'm a surveillance agent during the day. So. Oh, fantastic. So, That's really cool. Yeah, I get to play with gadgets all day long and get to, like, do I all these cool that. things. Well, actually, I'm not dissimilar in that, like, I found through theater that I really loved uh, carpentry because we I would participate in these set builds, and that's where I sort of fell in love with woodwork. And so that's one of my chief hobbies now is I build, you know, weird, shitty coffee tables and stuff <laughs> like that. Yeah, I think my – I'm not good at, like, doing certain things, but, uh, like, listening to people and watching them – you know, as a kid, I kind of just sat back and watched how people work, and that was just something that amazes me. And I think that's why I'm so interested in acting and movies and, you know, music and stuff like that, is how people take their emotions and create things with them. Right. And, and that's one of the things I just, I don't want to sound like a fanboy, but I just watched your work, and I was like, this guy, like, really gets into his character, and yeah. each time you create something new. That's really uh, a huge compliment. Thank you very much. So I guess I pretty much covered about everything. I know you have a couple projects coming up. You have Paul Blart 2 coming out in April? Yes, which I filmed last year, almost last summer. Um, but that should be that should be really fun. Kevin James was really cool. I liked working with him. It was fun and weird shooting in Vegas. That's just an odd place to go to work. Wait, you shot in Vegas during the summer? Yeah. Oh, were you on fire the whole time? Uh, we were... My scenes were indoors, and so we were getting shuttled around, but it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty grisly. Um, it's also just so weird because, you know, when you have like a, a 6 a.m. call time, so you're not there to party, you're not misbehaving, and you get up and you just see the underbelly of the city, like driving, driving to set at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, seeing like what is happening in that city is just such a sort of a, a weird experience. Yeah, I, I've only been there once. And I remember it was about 8 o'clock in the morning, and we were going to get breakfast. I'm not a Vegas party person. I'm a Vegas tourist person. Like, yeah. I went to the Pinball Hall of Fame. I went to, the, like, the Car Museum, stuff like that, you know, Planet Hollywood. And uh, we got up early for breakfast, and I'm seeing people come in from night long of partying. And sure. uh, this guy rolls down his window, and I think he's going to go say something to me. And he doesn't. He just chucks right on the street. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no doubt. I think he was not alone that day. Yeah, it's a strange element. Like, it's so fun, but at the same time, there's this weirdness that nowhere else in the world has. And when you leave, you're like, did that just happen? Did that really just happen? <laughs> so no desire to go back to Vegas, huh? You know what? There's so many more places to visit. Right, yeah, uh, I know. I don't know, maybe uh, some years down the road. Uh, Vegas is kind of changing, though, because there's casinos opening up all over this country. And it's damaging uh, Reno, Atlantic City. It really hasn't dug into Vegas yet, but I imagine soon it will. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. They're probably going to have to focus more on the touristy stuff. The right. big well, events I, and the shows and having more movies and TV shows shot there. Right. And I think they're making it, you know, they're, they're trying to attract as much production there as possible with tax incentives and stuff like that. 
And uh, besides uh, Paul Blart, you have a couple series here that I haven't seen available online, so I don't know. Are they web series? Another day with you? Yes, that's a web series that actually hasn't even uh, rolled out yet. Okay. A friend, and um, I, it should be really, really good. I don't, I don't know much about it. I haven't seen anything yet, but it was certainly fun to shoot it. And for me, it was like one of those things, like with web series, um, you know, because you're really, you're not certainly not doing it for the, for the money or anything. It was. Uh, because I got to play a really normal guy, which I don't get to do very often. Like, it's just the, her husband who's straight and normal and not quirky and not odd and stuff like that. So it was kind of a, a departure for me and one of the reasons, I, <clears throat> excuse me, I like doing it. And you also have another series, uh, Kittens for Cats, is that? Oh, Kittens uh, in a Cage. Kittens in a Cage, which I just did one episode of, and that's also a TV series that hasn't quite uh, seen the light of day yet and i so i know very little about that except i just really like the people that were involved with it and um i had some friends that were doing it and uh and it was just something i wanted to do and are you still part of circle x theater i am in fact i'm doing now that the both show both cougar town and quitjar are done i'm going to do a play for the first time in like three years um with circle x uh called trevor which is a really really interesting play um but I'm a little bit terrified because it's been a long time since I've been on stage. Yeah, I was watching the promo video that your group did on YouTube, and yeah. I was curious, is it just like you just act in it, or do you have a, a, a say in what you put out at the Playhouse, and do you write and direct? No, I don't do any writing and directing, um, and, I've, and it's been a long time since I've done any acting, so I'm on their board. I was one of the founders uh, of Circle X, and I still remain on their board, and I try, I help out... Um, with build, you know, set builds, with some fundraising stuff like that. Um, but I have not been able to actually be a participant, um, you know, creatively for quite a while. So I'm kind of excited about doing this play again. Lori Metcalf is in it, um, oh. who is remarkable. I mean, she, I didn't, she is so phenomenally good, um, and it's a joy to work with her. And this guy named um, Jimmy Simpson, who, do you watch um, House of Cards? Oh, is that the one on uh, Netflix? Yes. Um, no, I have not seen that. He's really, really he's got, he's um, been in the last season of that, and he's ex extremely good as well. So I think this play's going to be really interesting, and I'm um, kind of looking forward to doing it. Oh, Jimmy Simpson, yes, I know him from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry, he's also in that, too. I knew him from, from House of Cards, but, um, yeah, he's also in it, and I think he's on the newsroom, too. I love IMDb. What was it like before IMDb to look up people's resumes? How did like, you do it? I know. You had no idea. God, whoever created this is a genius. Yeah. <laughs> um, Amazon's got it, I think. So, uh, Paul Blart in April. Right. Paul Blart in April. Uh, the other two series, don't know when. The play opens in March in Los Angeles at Circle X. And then I'm just going to start auditioning and hopefully maybe uh, do some more commercial work and um, see what happens. Does it does it still make you nervous? Yeah, yeah. It never has not made me nervous. Like I, I reached a level with Cougar Town where like I wasn't terribly nervous because because I felt like I'd proven myself and my job wasn't on the line. But yeah, it's still you, you still don't want to be the one that's screwing up and you don't want to be the one that doesn't know what he's doing. And yeah, so I, yeah, I still get a little a little tight each time. But your love of it just keeps you going. It does. I mean, I do love the work. I'm not as crazy about living in Los Angeles. I would love, I think I'd probably be happier in a smaller, more um, normal city. 
but it's kind of where I have to be now, and so we're trying to make it uh, as best we can. Uh, but yeah, I do. I, I like the work, I, I, and I like the lifestyle. I like the people. So it's hard to it's hard to step away. So uh, we have a lot of young listeners, and I'm curious: is there any advice that you could give to anybody who's interested in going into acting? Uh, make sure you're doing it because you love acting, and not because you want the perks of it. Um, and know that it's going to be a that uh, you want to be in it for the long haul, and so it's going to take some some perseverance. It's going to take like you like you found out in a couple of years sometimes. Uh, before anything really happens. And so you've got to find the joy that keeps you going and doesn't make you get jaded or, you know, depressed or angry, you know, yourself or at others. Like, you're doing it for the right reasons and be be willing to persevere and just be persistent. Yeah, a lot of people probably walk away after a while, but you stick to your guns. That it always That's something I truly respect. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, I think people come here, they'll, they'll stay for a year, it doesn't work out, and they leave. It's like, that's not... You know, you you gotta you gotta hang around longer than that because there's so many factors at play. It's not just whether you're talented or not, or good looking enough, or or whatever. It's like there's other there's good fortune, there's professionalism, there's all these other things that come into play. Being in the right place at the right time, um, and everything sort of all the planets have to align. Um, but I still I also still think that the cream does you know rise. I think people who have what what they need, and if they're persistent, eventually it may take ten years, but like eventually you find the vehicle for you and the recognition you you wanted. All right, well, thank you very much, everybody. Catch Cougar Town; it's on TBS right now. Catch Quick Draw, ten items or less, complete series over on Hulu, and be ready for Paul Blart two in April. Thank you, Bob Clendenin. Michael, this was a tremendous pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, I look forward to doing it again sometime. All right, thank you very much. And listeners, have a good night. Hey, Retro Rocketeers, another great episode. This episode, we're going to be interviewing actor Kyle T. Hefner. Appeared in a bunch of great movies in the 80s, a bunch of movies and TV shows in the 90s, and he's got a handful of films coming up this year, and we're going to discuss his career. How's it going, Kyle? Great, Michael. How are you doing? I'm good. I got about 13 hours of sleep, so I'm well-rested. <laughs> oh, nice. Nicely done. It was one of those days where, like, I really don't have a whole lot to do. I'm just going to keep playing here until I'm done. Oh, great. That sounds good. I'm glad you're resting. <laughs> so um, I just want to kind of talk to you about your career and some of your upcoming projects. So thank okay. you, first of all, for uh, being on the show. Oh, no problem. It, it sounded like it would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I love doing these um, these interviews because you get that. I love character actors, you know, like the supporting actors. They don't get a whole lot of, uh, um, like, of promotion and show and stuff like that. But the movies don't exist without these people around the leads to hold up the film. And you're one of those yes, guys. That's We're awesome. always around. We are the flying buttresses of the entertainment industry. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to talk to you about how you began. So did you go to school for this? Yeah, I did. I, I actually started when I was a kid, around 11, and uh, I was at a children's theater in Chicago called the Jack and Joe Players, and 
I, um, my parents noticed, you know, that I had kind of an affinity for performing or something. So there was like, maybe he should be in the theater. I don't know. So anyway, I started at this place and it was really fun because I was around um, kids from all over the city, kids that were already working professionally. And uh, it was run by this gentleman, Franklin Adams, who is a wonderful man and uh, very caring and everything. And, and we were able to be together and work on, I don't know how many, by the time I was 18, I had probably done 30, 30 plays, maybe. I, I don't even know. Just tons and tons of plays. And that's one of those things that you probably, when you hit like college you know, that time, there's something you really focus on, this is what I want to do for a living, or did you kind of, oh, I'm not sure, I might do something else and intermix acting with it, or was that like, this is it for me? No, that was it. And then through children's theater, you know, they, when things were going on in Chicago, they would call the theater for kids. So I actually did my first commercial and got my uh, tapped Hartley and SAG because I did a public service announcement they had called the theater, and they wanted some kids, and I went and auditioned with a couple of friends, and actually all three of us did this public service announcement for the police department in Chicago, and I got tapped Hartley, so that facilitated me joining SAG later when I um, moved to Los Angeles. And I also did a bunch of educational films through that, and slide films, and you know, I did those Encyclopedia Britannica films. Oh, and yeah, I remember those. Britannica presents, you know, Economics and You. You know, I did a bunch of those, and uh, I think it, I did six at least. And then I also worked as a supernumerary with the Lyric Opera of Chicago. So I got to hang out with all these huge opera stars like Marilyn Horn and Tito Gobi. You know, and I'm standing backstage with them, and they're warming up, you know, <laughs> you know, and spitting. You know, so it was, a, it was really cool to be around these, these uh, gigantic opera stars. Um, so then when I got to college, I thought, well, and I went to college, I was a theater major, I went to Northwestern in Evanston, just outside of Chicago, and I thought, uh, you know, maybe I'll be a, um, I'll have a minor in pre-law, you know, I could always go to law school, and I took my first pre-law course, and I realized I was way out of my league. I remember writing a paper for my poli-sci course, and my professor was actually involved with Washington in terms of the salt crops and all this stuff. And my, I, I let a, a very bright friend of mine read my paper, and he said, you know what, Kyle, it, it's a good thing you resemble the professor because you really can't write at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got that thing, too. I was, uh, I'm was i a theater. I, do, I graduated with a theater degree, and I took a couple business classes as like a backup. And I right. sat there going, I am bored out of my mind. I don't think I could do this for a living, even if it was a backup. So right. I just said, forget it. I'm just going all in. So I did broadcasting and theater. So, Oh, good for you. Yeah, yeah, you had fun. Yeah, I mean, I figured I'm paying for it, so I might as well have fun doing it instead of being yeah. miserable doing something that might be safe. I just, air, I just did air quotations, and there's nobody that could possibly see that. I don't know why I did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I could feel it. I felt the air so after you graduated, was it kind of scary jumping from your hometown to L.A.? No, it was really exciting. Although on the drive to uh, Los Angeles, I drove and I got somebody to share the ride with me, a guy I didn't know, but, you know, the ride board, you know, those things. And uh, all the while I'm driving to Los Angeles, I'm thinking, what the hell am I doing? 
Why, you know, how could I possibly, you know, get anything going out there? But I did have a bit of luck my senior year in college. Um, I was, you know, by the time you're a senior and you've done a lot of stuff, you know, you've got a lot of, you know, you got a lot of stuff going on. And I did an improv comedy show all during college. Well, my first three years, I directed the third year. And then my fourth year, I starred in a video feature that we shot in our new TV studio at the time. And uh, and I did this show at school called The Meow Show, which is an improv comedy show that Julie Louis-Dreyfus came out of, Brad Hall, Gary Kroger, Paul Barras, uh, Seth Meyers. I mean, a bunch of people came out of that show. And uh, I don't know if Zach did it. I don't know if Zach Graff did it. Um, I'm not sure. But anyway, um, that my senior year, Gary Marshall came back, who was also a Northwestern alum. And one of my professors said, you know, um, Gary's been asking about you, and because we had done a special improv comedy show just for Gary. And uh, they said, go by the studio, and uh, they're interviewing him there tonight, and, and talk to him. So I was like, okay. So I go by there, and there's like 10 students deep, you know, standing around Gary, waving scripts at him. I mean, it was, you know, crazy. And I was like, you know, I was a college senior and, you know, probably pretty full of myself. And I was like, yeah, I'm not standing in line for anybody. <laughs> so I went outside and uh, I was standing on the stairs talking to some other friends. And I, I, I get a tap on the shoulder and I turn around and it's Gary Marshall. He goes, hello, Kyle, Gary Marshall. How are you? I've seen things funny. I like it. If you move to Los Angeles, call, we'll sit, we'll talk. And uh, I ended up, um, I said, well, Gary, I'm moving here in September. He said, we'll call, we'll sit, we'll talk. And uh, so I did have that shit uh, going on. So when I did move to Los Angeles and that fall, I called several times and I finally got an audience with Gary. And I'd read that Gary liked milkshakes, uh, like in TV Guide. There was no internet. And so I went and I, I stopped by a burger place and I got two milkshakes, a vanilla and a chocolate. And I had them in this little brown bag and I go into the office and Gary goes, uh, Gary says, well, what's in the bag? I said, well, Gary, I read that you like milkshakes and I have a chocolate and a vanilla. Which one would you like? Says, I'll have the chocolate. So we sat and uh, talked and had our milkshake. And that was really the beginning. And then Gary opened... Uh, he was the king of Paramount at the time, you know, with Happy Days of Running Shirley. Right. And he opened his office to me. I could go into his office, call his office anytime. I could go on the Paramount lot. I could see any taping I wanted. They'd have a seat taped off for me. He was he was quite lovely. And then when he did his first feature, which was Young Doctors in Love, um, another friend of mine, Kim Lewis, uh, was working for him as well from school. And I read it, or she's Gary's doing this movie, and you know, you should really get your stuff in. And I, I finally did after she goaded me several times. And then I went and auditioned, and Gary put me to work for 10 weeks on that film. Yeah, I just watched it again. I haven't seen it in about six years, and I forgot he really had a good control over the level of jokes. I don't think there's a single dud in that movie. The story oh, itself is compelling, at the same time, it's rampant silliness. It is. It is, and what an amazing cast. I mean, everybody, I mean, Demi Moore is in the film. Right. Um, it's, it's like it's, a first movie for a lot of people. I think it's Rick Overton's first movie, Taylor Negron, Rest in Peace, yes. uh, his first movie. 
And uh, it's weird just seeing so many people for like the first time. I know, I think um, Mike McKean, of course, had been on uh, Vernon Shirley, but I think it was his first movie as well. I may be wrong about that. It could have been, and I think Sean had just finished Blade Runner. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. That or, And yeah. she had done Stripes, too. But getting all those people together for one movie and seeing so much talent come out of that, that was amazing. Oh, yeah, and Richard Dean Anderson in a really early role as, like, a oh, drug dealer. Oh, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> yeah, sadly, that movie is out of print. I hope someone picks it up and put it, puts it back out. But uh, you can find it, I think, um, like, you can pay download to stream, like, three bucks on Amazon or something like that to get it. It's a really good movie. I really enjoyed it. Oh, great. I'm so glad you did. I always thought it was funny and you know, it was during the airplane era, so I think it was right after airplane. I yeah, think. it was the spoof era at that point. So um, he was spoofing, you know, and he had all the people from General Hospital. That's why Demi Moore was there, and uh, Jacqueline Seaman was there, and tons of people from the soap operas. And so that led to Flashdance. Am I correct? It did, uh, because uh, the producer of Young Doctors in Love was Jerry Bruckheimer. That's right, that's right. I remember seeing that name going, didn't he do Flashdance? So he had he seen did. you and decided to cast you in that? He did, and then Bruck, Jerry uh, teamed with Don Simpson right after that, and uh, they had, Jerry had done Cat People, I think, and then they teamed up, and they put together Flashdance, and... I went and read for that, you know, three or four times and uh, met Adrian. And um, I, when I was auditioning for it, actually at the final callback, I knew that it might be a potential callback, but I didn't know that my parents were visiting from Chicago. And I drove them to Vegas. And I got to Vegas and I checked my service, you know, the old check your service days. And it was like, you have an audition this afternoon at four or five or six or something like that, at Paramount with the producers and the director of Flashdance. So I got my parents in the room and I hopped on a plane <laughs> and flew back to Los Angeles and drove to Paramount. And I, you know, it had been a long day, so I was over in the side of the lot doing some Tai Chi to relax myself, get myself nice and centered, and. Uh, I go into the audition, it was in a bungalow at Paramount, and I meet Adrian Line, and Adrian says, you know, we were looking out the window, and we saw you over there in the corner waving your arms about, waving your arms and legs about, what was, what was all that? And I said, oh my God, you saw me. <laughs> I said, well, I was just doing some Tai Chi to relax. He said, oh, it was wonderful, marvelous. Um, so... And then I came out of the audition, and there was this beautiful young girl sitting there. And she said, would you like some candy? She had a bag of candy. And I, I took some candy from her, and we were talking, and she was quite lovely. And it turned out it was Jennifer Beals, and we were, you know, seeing, I guess, if we had any candy chemistry, you know. Um, but it was all a very interesting uh, process to get that film. Yeah, it's funny. The movie was a massive success, and it was it was something that you know there was real no big names attached to it. It's just like that period of time where any movie had a chance of being a big hit. It doesn't seem like that works that way now. It's like you know you have to have a big A lister, you have to have tons and tons of promotion. Back then, they let movies grow, and I, if I remember correctly, I was very young, but Flashdance didn't really become like a big thing in the first couple of weeks. It was like as it built. A lot of movies used to do that; they would build and stick around for months on end. Am I yeah. right? 
fact, I was seeing another film. I remember I was at the Fox Theater, I think, where actually the Flashdance premiere turned out to uh, be. And I was sitting here watching another movie, and the Flashdance trailer came on, and the audience roared with laughter. Roared. You know, uh, welder by day, dancer by night. The audience was on the floor laughing, and I went, oh, man, this uh. is going to be good. This is not going to be good. But it turned out to be good. And uh, everyone was very surprised. I think Paramount as well, because I think they had sold off a portion of the film. So, you know, the funny thing about Richie is if your character, if you hadn't played him as so endearing, like kind of the boy next door, like kind of, he, he seems a little bit awkward and uncomfortable at times. If you hadn't done that with the character, I don't think the jokes would have aged so well, because that's a lot of Polish jokes. And yeah, yeah, really uh, not politically correct, but the the idea was, I think, to have him do bad jokes, To that had to reinforce the idea that he didn't make it in Hollywood, because he comes back. So, you know what I mean? That right. He wasn't it's, ready, so I think it had to be clear that he wasn't ready for Hollywood. Right, and it's kind of such a sad ending. I mean, it's an honest ending. But at the end, he comes back, you know, tail between his legs, and he runs into his old girlfriend, and they kind of end the story. Was that supposed to be the end of his character, or was there anything that was cut out? No, that was the end. There was one scene cut, and it wasn't, in retrospect, uh, clearly it wasn't necessary, was when um, Jeannie runs off to the strip joint, uh, Jennifer came, or Alex, came to see me in my uh, hovel where I lived, and we actually shot it in a transient hotel in downtown Los Angeles. And um, it was had quite an aroma in there. And uh, she came to see me and told me that she was in the strip joint. Um, but I don't think, I think I moved on. I mean, the way they structured my character is that I was like, well, you know, it's not my deal. I don't remember what the scene was. But it was, I clearly didn't go with Jennifer to get her out of the strip joint. Right. Um, and they just let my character do that and let uh, Jennifer be the hero, which has worked out really well. Now, after that, did it get easier to get roles, or do you still have to do the normal thing, like go in and do the auditions, go through the whole, the whole thing, where you like the, oh, just the same thing as any other actor, or did it get a little bit easier? Well, it got a lot easier. Um, it got a lot easier for a while because, you know, I was known then. And so I did have a lot of opportunities, and I did, um, yeah, things would, would not really come to me, but like when I got, I don't know what was right after that. I don't know if it was Woman in Red or Runaway Train. That was Woman in Red. It was Woman in Red. So Woman in Red, yes. Uh, Gene Wilder just invited me to his house for uh, tea, and uh, we sat in his living room and talked and joked around for a little bit. Gilda brought us some tea, and we sat and joked around, and then he offered me the film. Yeah, the funny thing about that character, your character does not say a whole lot. You you do more like mime. You know, you do a lot with your face without saying anything, and yet your role is very pivotal to that movie because of the way things work out with uh, Gilda's character and, um, you know, the main the way it works with, you know, she falls in love with you instead of uh, Gene Wilder. And it's funny just watching because you say so much without saying a single word. Was that kind of hard to keep that contained? No, not at all. No, I, I mean, uh, that's perfectly wonderful. Um, you know, uh, 
I enjoyed, I mean, I'm working with Gene Wilder, you know, childhood yeah. era, and um, no, that was perfectly fine. You know, it's like the old uh, Steve McQueen adage, he would go through the script and reduce his lines. I don't need to say that, I'll show it. I don't need to say that, I'll show it. So I, I it's perfectly fine to um, have limited dialogue. It gives you more to, I, sometimes you have the dialogue, but it makes you work harder to say something with just your face and your body movements. It's, it's good. It's good training, I would say, for an actor. Yeah, it's uh, yes, it's it's great training, and it's just all part of creating the the picture that one is trying to present in, in the film. If you can show it rather than say it, it's much better. Now, the next two movies you did, both in 1985, I think are absolutely fantastic. Yet one has been kind of forgotten, and one has been you know growing over the years as one of the greatest action movies of all time. The first one is Warning Sign, which um, I have, which I think is severely out of print, but it's a fantastic movie. It's it's basically a zombie movie. It's like the first Rage Virus movie before Twenty Eight Days Later did it. Really? Okay. Yeah, and I think it's the first movie to ever use that kind of twist. And what about it? Oh no, I just I thought it was a fantastic movie. I know you're not in it much, but it's one of those movies that I thought, wow, this really needs to be discovered again. And it's just kind of a shame that it's kind of lost. That's interesting. Yeah, it was uh again, that was uh I guess, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, it was so long ago. But that was also, Hey Kyle, do you want to come in and do this movie for a week? And and who's in it? Oh, Sam Watterson, Kathleen Quinlan, Quinlan Yafet Koto. Yeah, I'll, I'll come and do whatever you guys want. Um, and uh, so it was great for me because I was working with Yafet Kodo and uh, Nishak Taylor, who um, left us a couple of years ago. And so I got to know Nishak. I knew who he was. So we had a great time. And Yafet is just a wonderful man, just terrific. And... Uh, I wasn't actually in scenes with Waterspin and Quinlan, but, you know, we kind of hung out a little bit, and uh, I was really happy to be around, you know, all of these gigantic talents. Yeah. Really- now, of course, he spent two movies in one year, you're behind a console. That had to get a little bit like, can I please move around a little bit? Because <laughs> Runaway Train, you are like the lead of the whole computer system that the train system runs on, and that's yeah. probably one of your... Uh, medius roles. I mean, you're in a huge chunk of that movie. And yeah. Yeah. The, the funny thing, the movie is one of the most amazing action films I've ever seen. It still holds up to this day. Um, and the whole thing is really brutal, unrelenting in its vision. It, it's one of the most um, complete movies I've ever seen. At no point does the director waver in his vision and give you something that would make you more comfortable. It's, it's uncompromised. And the performances are amazing all around. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was... Uh... That was really interesting, too. Again, that was a, a quick one. I, I replaced another actor who fell out, and I went into the to the set. I remember walking onto the set, and this scary-looking guy was walking up to me, and it was um, it was uh, Voight, you know, in makeup. And um, he was, uh, you know, he was in his full makeup, and I, I didn't recognize him. And... Uh, I said hello, and he kind of peered at me. And I went to the trailer, and I, I met with Pancholovsky, and we talked for. Um, uh, hang on one second. Okay. I called an hour, and I read the script, and I, I kind of had a handle on the character, and so we talked on a Friday, and I think I went to work on a mo- on the Monday. 
That's a lot to remember in just a weekend. Did you have to like pack that into your brain, that, the, all your dialogue? It was, it was very, very fast. Now, who's sure. bigger, John Voight or John P. Ryan? I'm sorry? Which which is a bigger... I mean, these both men seem enormous. John Voight or John P. Ryan? Because you had to meet both of them. They seem like really big, intimidating guys. Well, you know, actually, most people, a lot of actors may do that on screen, but they're quite lovely in person. And that's just their screen persona. Uh, both men um, are terrifically warm and uh, great. I mean, it's, you know, it's not, they're not their screen persona. They're, you know, just terrific guys. So it must have made that scene where John P. Ryan has to shove your head into a urinal easier to handle if he, he didn't terrify you. Oh, not at all. No, it was, I mean, when we're acting, he was. But sitting around, he's just a warm, lovely guy. And uh, that scene, in fact, they, the director showed me that the urinal was perfectly clean, <coughs> and um, they put water in it, and to color it slightly the color of urine, they put a lovely French apple juice in it. Uh, <laughs> so my skin was terrific and glowing after that. Yeah, so the movie itself, for the most part, is set outside in the freezing, freezing cold, but luckily you got to stay in the warm console area. <laughs> you must have been grateful yes, for that. For like, sure. I don't have to go outside, we're good. Yeah, no, all, all of that other stuff had been shot. We were the very last... Oh. The, the interiors of the control room were the very last things to be shot, if, if my memory serves me correctly. They might have gone back to shoot a little extra stuff, but I think the, the bulk of the movie was done. Uh, and I know they were shooting some... They had some mock-ups of the train. I think they did a bunch of close-ups and stuff. And... Uh, in, they were shooting in the Pan Pacific Auditorium. It was not a huge budget film. Uh, it was canon, and um, the old Pan Pacific Auditorium, which was where that Pan Pacific Park is located next to the Grove, there was an old theater there, or it was a large structure, but I know it was called the Pan Pacific Auditorium, but that's where, that's where some of the train stuff, because they had a whole train built inside of there. Oh, okay. And my stuff was shot in an old silent film studio cool. in downtown L.A. I don't even remember the name of it. I'm sure it doesn't even exist. Yeah, a lot of people think that Canon Pictures only made like cheap exploitation movies, you know, like Chuck Norris, Charles Bronson movies. But they would take the profits from those movies and put them into more artistic efforts. So while, yes, they had Missing in Action and Ninja movies, they would take those profits and put them into movies like Runaway Train, which got Oscar nominations, so it was worth spending the money on. And that's what a lot of people forget about that company. Yes, I think they do. Um, uh, they did a really good job, you know, in, in hiring of Konchalowski to direct the script based on a Kurosawa script was a really good move. Um, and, you know, it got, I think, at least three Oscar nominations for John and Eric and uh, the cinematographer who actually was the same cinematographer as uh, Young Doctors in Love. Oh, no kidding. That's a completely different look for those movies. Well, he's a very talented guy. Very versatile. Yeah. So very after that, you kind of intermixed, like, pilot shows and, you know, guest features and stuff like that, and, like, some, you know, like, uh, Spellbinder, Angel 3, which I watched Angel 3 the other day. Not that bad. I expected oh, <laughs> I expected to be, like, really exploitation. I was like, oh, it's pretty good. Well, yeah, you know, and I got to work with Richard Roundtree. Yeah, he was. Um, but I was wondering, you know, you did the pilot episodes. I noticed that you did one with Gary Marshall. It was a pilot episode with Michael Richards, and it was called Herndon. 
did that ever air? I I think it aired. There used to be this kind of season at the end of the summer or during the summer where they would it was called like the pilot graveyard and they air pilots that didn't make it. I don't know. I don't think they do it anymore. But yeah. back in those days, they used to do that. And I think they did air it. And um, of course, this was pre Seinfeld, and um, everyone knew Michael was an immense talent. And uh, Gary put this thing together, and I thought it was pretty funny. Um, it was very funny, and I had a great time and got to know Michael really well. Um, and Michael was doing very similar to what he ended up doing on Seinfeld, a lot of physical humor. And I remember he and I had a whole thing with a with a water bottle, you know, from the water cooler, like in the office. Uh-huh. We had a, he had a whole thing where he was juggling this water cooler and spilling water all over everybody. And, you know, it was kind of like the wacky guy, I think, with an office job. It's kind of like the, the Seinfeld episode where he's, you know, working. He's going to work. Right. Know? I'm working now. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that was really interesting. And and, uh, uh, and I'd worked with him. I knew him. Of course, I'd worked with him on Young Doctors in Love as well. Yeah, the funny thing is, I, I remember they used to do that. They would burn off the stuff during the summer and give it a chance. At least if someone had positive reception to it, it might get picked up. I kind of wish the networks would let us choose what's on the air. Like, let us view all the pilots and if we like them, you know, instead of like, well, this doesn't fit with our schedule. But what if it's a good show? That's the thing that always bothered me. Just let it breathe. Let people have a chance to decide themselves whether it's going to be um, worth keeping as a series. Yeah, I I think the, I mean, the, the Amazon model, I don't know if it's Amazon. It is. I think it's Amazon. The Amazon model is purportedly to be like that, but I'm not sure that they, they will air, a, you know, they'll make a pilot available and see what the response is. Um, that's, that's supposedly their model, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think I think that's right. They they'll test out like they did the Zombieland TV show, and people were like, "Where's the original cast?" And it didn't work out. But some other shows are like they took to like that new one, um, Transcendence, I think is what it's called. Uh, but whatever, they let people choose what is going to be on the air, which I think is a great idea, which they should go back to. Yes, and a friend of mine was in one. A uh, friend of mine, James McDaniel, was in one called Hysteria, okay. um, and uh, I think with Mina Suvari. And that, uh, I remember that was the model for that, is that that's what they were waiting for the response and all of that. So, um, I think, so they're, I think they're trying it, uh, you know, on the new platforms. I think they're trying to do it that way, but I don't know. Yeah, so you had done about three or four TV appearances and a couple of pilots, and then that led to When Harry Met Sally. It did. It did. Um, that was really lovely. That was, you know, that role, again, I did not have a, a lot of dialogue. In fact, there was not there was so little dialogue that when I went and met with Rob Reiner, I read another character's role, and um, and and then Rob asked. He goes, Rob, right there said, "Hey, well, you know what? You'll do it. You'll do it. You know, cancel the rest of the meeting," and <laughs> um, which was great. And um, so, but I ended up, you know, I think working on that maybe two weeks because. We shot a couple things in L.A., and then I went to New York and worked on it for a week there, which was great fun. Yeah, it's funny. is That movie I just watched again uh, a couple nights ago, and it still stands up. Almost all these movies that you appeared in, they, they nothing ages whatsoever. It still stands the test of time, and it doesn't well, like, oh, that was just of the moment kind of thing. That has, that's a, has to feel good. 
on the bounty. I'm sorry? Well, you probably never saw Mutant on the Bounty. Actually, no, I did. I just, I was just about to mention it. I just watched Mutant on the Bounty. Um, yeah, it had to be rough being in makeup the entire movie, huh? Well, th- that was interesting. Actually, the funny part was the first time they put all the makeup on, the prosthetics, the glue they used was too strong. And it took them over two hours to get it off. That had uh, to hurt. Yeah, it was. It took a while. It was mil, It was millimeter by millimeter, using a solvent to get it off. Ugh. And they figured it out later. They they cut the uh, the amount of adhesive they used. Um, but yeah, that took uh, took a bit to get it off. But that was interesting because what you learn doing that is when you don't have your regular face to use how much you use your eyes and your vocal inflection and the rest of your body. So it was a, it was a very interesting constraint. It, it was a really interesting exercise. It really was. Yeah, I mean, you were saying earlier when I was trying to find this movie, I was like, eh, I'm not so sure about that one. But, I mean, you learn a lot from that movie. You know, you're the, it was your first lead, and you had to spend the entire thing in makeup, and it's very confined shooting. You know, you're all in that uh, the, sp- the fake spaceship. I don't think it's a bad movie, but you can see, like, of course, special effects advance so fast that it kind of, oh, that looks of that time. It does. Yeah, we were shooting up at a studio in Santa Clarita, as I recall. Um, But again, I got to work with John Fleck, you know, very talented uh, performance artist. And I've been so uh, lucky to work and meet with such really interesting people over all the years, you know? Yeah. So I would say, even though it may not, it, it doesn't get a lot of exposure. It is out of print. I think it's on. I think yeah, I'm getting it on VHS, which I still have a VCR. Be surprised, <laughs> I still have a VCR. Yeah, so that's how I ended up getting it from a, a used copy. So I, then I would say, probably for most of the '90s, you did a lot of TV, and a lot of that probably, um, you know, it built up to the big Seinfeld episode, which is probably one of the most memorable episodes of all time. Did it get it frustrating though at times, like? You know, just doing one episode a year. Did you ever be like, I don't know, should I do something else, or what kept you? What kept you going after all this? You know, like those certain gaps where there would there'd be like a burst of work, then not so much, a burst of work, and not so much. Well, it was interesting. I early on, I used to keep an application to Yale Grad School, and and every time I got frustrated, I'd fill out another line. But I'm going to grad school. Screw this. Um, but I I don't know. It's I've always felt like this is what I do, and I don't, I really back myself into a corner, Michael, and I, I don't really have any other skills. I can't do anything else. Um, I've learned, you know, I can do a little, you know, I can change the thing in the toilet tank, you know, I can do that now, um, you know, now that, you know, I've been alive a, a while and had to do things around the house. But I, it's, it's always what I, what I've done, and also during those years, I, I was doing a lot of commercials, so um, that really kept me going. Um, that kept me going financially, and um, creatively, I did a lot of theater, um, and every now and then, I'd go out and do stand-up. So, oh, cool. So when I, I would find, if I was bored, I would go do a play. I've done probably 25 equity waiver plays in Los Angeles. And commercially, I've probably done around 100 national commercials. Um, so, 
and I and when I was doing commercials, I was working with the king. I was working with a guy named Joe Pitka, and he and I worked really well together. And I may have done I don't know twenty to thirty spots with with Joe. All right, and, Joe Pitka directed Space Jam, right? Yes, he did. Okay, I was wondering if that was the same guy. And he had, he and I had a wonderful working relationship, and. He uh, he doesn't shoot so many anymore. The last one I did with him was for the Winter Olympics, I think, four years ago. Not the last one, the one before. But um, I worked with him quite a bit. So that kept me going financially. The plays and stand-up kept me going um, spiritually and creatively. Um, and then although, you know, I wrote a bunch of screenplays with friends, you know, spec scripts. I've done, a, you know, several indies that I've produced. Um, so because I feel and I tell my friends, they said, you know, if we're creators, then create. You don't need, you know, you don't have to be on the set. You don't have to have the job. Keep creating. And if, and if you, um, and that's what I try to do. That I just try to have some fun. Right. And do interesting things. So um, I just kind of fall, follow what's going on. And. You know, people call me to do plays periodically, and um, now it's web series. People call you to do their web series, and uh, I've been around a while. I know a bunch of people, so I'm I'm able to stay alive creatively uh, pretty well. So I would say probably any great advice to give to young actors is just constantly create. Don't wallow in in the slow periods. Just constantly be on the move. Yes, I think so, and. Uh, I mean, I can't say that I never wallowed, <laughs> but you know, then you, then you, uh, you, uh, people tell you, you know, develop, get a sport, you know. So I started playing tennis, so and riding and cycling, and you know, you have to have things to do um, during the downtime because I never, after I shot Young Doctors in Love, I had worked as a stereo salesman in L.A. I was a high-pressure stereo salesman. Um, and, uh, you know, when they used to have stereo stores. And uh, so after I shot Young Doctors in Love, I, was, I had all this leisure time, which I never had in my life. When I was in college, I worked two, sometimes three jobs while I was going to school, while I was doing a play and, you know, doing everything else. So I've always been incredibly busy. So after Young Doctors in Love, I'm like, what do you do with all this time? I'm not a sit-by-the-pool guy. Right. Um, so I, I started playing tennis and, you know, things like that. Right, I think we're alike in mind. You always kind of hustle for whatever you want instead of just sitting there waiting for it to happen. And yeah. uh, that's the kind of thing I can respect, you know. It, it, always keep yourself busy because, you know, there is only so much life you have. You might as well fill it with adventures. Yes, and I've had quite a few adventures. So, um, yes, and then... I met my wife, and we got married, and now I have two kids, and, you know, that's that's pretty busy. So, they're older now. Um, my son, Colin, is 17, a high school junior. My daughter, Katya, who's uh, graduated and working toward being an elementary school teacher. Oh, and cool. They're lovely kids. Did they, um, ever, they ever contemplate acting? You know, they are not... Um, no, I, I kind of thought maybe they would, but um, neither one have gone that way. My son is an athlete, which is really interesting to me. I I was never, I was always athletic, you know, I did mime and all that stuff, but I, I was never, never did organized sports. So right. being involved with him with organized sports has been really interesting. And um, 
fascinating and really fun because it's something I knew absolutely nothing about. <laughs> What's his sport? Well, he went through baseball, he went through soccer, he had a, a brief flirtation with football, um, and now he's taking pole vaulting pretty seriously. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Not a lot of people say that. You usually hear like, oh, basketball, baseball, but yeah, pole vaulting, that's very specific. It's very specific. Well, yeah. I'd be, it'd be cool to see him in the Olympics in a couple of years. Yes. Well, he, he, he's very good at it, and uh, he's, he's pretty focused, so we'll see what happens. So after all doing a lot of that TV work, you did a really good movie. I don't think it got a lot of exposure, and I just rented it on Netflix. It's uh, Shrink Wrap. Oh, wow, Michael. You're, you're awesome. Thank you so much. Well, I, I do my research. Yeah, Shrink Wrap. Um, my friend uh, Doug Cox wrote the screenplay, and he wanted to, to do this film, and I read it, and I had... Uh, worked on, I'd written and produced uh, another indie which got nothing, you wouldn't even be able to, I'd have to show it to you, um, called Lords of Los Angeles so I'd been through the indie world I'd actually gone through the entire process of, of producing an indie and I read the screenplay and I said, well Doug, this is a great script, it would be great um, but I have to play uh, the character's character and uh, Doug believed me for some reason and, and Doug's a very talented guy. He's one of the founding members of the Groundlings. Oh, okay. And um, so we put the film together, and uh, we had a really good time shooting it. Um, and we did get it out there a little bit. Where did you find it? I rented it on Netflix. Oh, great. Oh, I didn't know it was on Netflix. That's awesome. Yeah, it has extra features on it, too, so someone did a good job filling it with stuff. Oh, that's great news. Yeah I, would, yeah, I would say anybody who's listening to this, I highly recommend it. I would, I'll, I'll say this. Okay, to be honest, the trailer doesn't sell the movie. The trailer, uh, it, it, it doesn't flow and, and everything. And I was like, ah, oh, I don't know about this movie. And then I watched it. I was like, wow, this was awesome. You, you and Lyndon Ashby work together very well. Oh, thank you. Yeah, he's a terrific actor. And, uh, and we had a great time. Um, and Eddie McDaniel was, was so great. And I brought in a couple of my friends, Priscilla Barnes, who's wonderful. I, I was in acting class with her before she did Three's Company, so I've known her a long time. Okay. And uh, Richard Kind, I went to college with Richard, and uh, I brought Richard aboard. And it was a very, really interesting shoot. And Doug Cox, the writer, director, producer, um, just incredibly disciplined and wonderful to work with because we, you know, we made our days and, you know, he got it cut, he got it out there. Uh, really interesting. So we lucked out with that one very much. We did, we did a lot of film, film festivals with that. I think we did, not a lot, but we did three or four. We did, I think we were second runner-up for the Audience Award at Dances with Films in Santa Monica. Uh-huh. We, we did... Uh, Sarasota, we did Jacksonville, and we did New Orleans. We had a really fun run with that. Really fun run. Is it expensive traveling around to all those film festivals? Well, I don't know. It was fun. Oh, I mean, <laughs> sorry, I, I was thinking of the weird... <laughs> that was, it was really fun. So, uh, that was a downer moment. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, it was really fun. So, I don't know how expensive it was. You buy an airplane ticket, and you check into the travel lodge. You know, so... You know, or you stay at Motel 6 or whatever, and you have a great time. So, and you go to New Orleans and eat a lot of oysters. So, yeah. and po' boys. 
So you, you have a great time, and it's just part of the thing. You have to work the festival. You got to you get to talk to people. You meet a tons and tons of people, and uh, you watch a lot of great movies. Sounds fun. So it looks like you've been working more now than you ever have before. Your IMDb page is loaded over the last two years. That has well, to feel good. Interesting. It's interesting, and I and I just noticed that I have fifty seven credits, and um, I was born in nineteen fifty seven. And I'm, I might be 57 years old, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> and, uh, so 57 is, is really interesting right now. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been really lucky recently. Um, I've also been very focused. My kids are older. They don't need me as much. I feel there, there's a Kevin Spacey quote, which I, which I really like, and I, I use it kind of as a mantra to myself almost daily. <laughs> Pardon me. Which is get out of your own way, and I try to do that. And when you're young and and you you have a lot of success, um, I didn't have a lot of success. I I've never been, you know, I've never been paid a seven figure salary or a six figure salary. Um, I've always always just scraped it together every year, and um, but I've been, you know, I've had a lot of visibility. And when you're young, you don't realize how lucky you are. You're like, oh, wow, okay, this is the way it's going to be. But it's not the way it's going to be. You have to keep working incredibly hard. It's something I didn't realize when I was younger. Um, I'm just being up front with you here, Michael. I didn't realize how lucky I was, and I didn't realize how much work, how much more work. I thought, because I'd worked so hard, I worked very hard from 11 to 23 um, very, very hard, and, you know, I kind of slacked off a little bit, and I believe that the reason um, I have been able to get a couple of things going recently is that I've really returned to being very, very focused and working incredibly hard. And it's, it's paying off. Yes, and as one of my good friends uh, has said to me frequently, James McDaniel, who was in hysteria, he says... <clears throat> Work harder, the secret to success is just work harder than everyone else. And so that's what I try to do. When I have auditions, I spend hours on it, hours. Um, and when I, when I go to work, I spend hours preparing. And you never look down on the material either. It's, it, it, whatever you show up in, no matter how big or small it is, you never seem to treat it like, oh, this is a tiny budget movie, I don't really need to try as hard. I mean, I watched The Book of Daniel, and that has a completely different budget than Red Sky, and at no point do I see you like phoning it in. Oh, thank you very much. Um, that was really interesting because it was dialogue heavy, so I had to, it, it, it required a lot of work. And, and actually, while I was shooting that, on, my, on one of my days off, I went in and shot, it was very small, but I went in and shot a little bit on Shameless. So I was, I was like, you know, burning the candle at both ends. I was like, oh, i got to trim my beard, i got to color it back in, i got to run off and do this Shameless. And I think I did a, I, I might have done a General Hospital episode during that, too. It was like a wacky two weeks. Very <laughs> wacky two weeks. But yes, I, I was really uh, excited to do that film, and I've never done a Bible film. And I thought, well, this is an opportunity to do something I've never done before. And everyone loves the Daniel and the Lion, Lion's Den story. And uh, 
I was working with a terrific director, and the cast was great. I mean, even Gallagher is in that film. Yeah, which threw me off at first. I kept looking at it going, that sure looks like Gallagher, because I haven't seen him in a while. And it slowly dawned on me, I go, oh, that is Gallagher. (laughs) Yeah, Gallagher, Lance Hendrickson, I mean, it's it's a, a really interesting cast, and it was fun. It was, and it was an interesting challenge to do something so dialogue heavy. So that did require a lot of work and uh, a lot of fish oil. I, I take a lot of fish oil to keep my brain in. Yeah. And then that led to Free Ride, where you don't have a whole lot of dialogue, but you're extreme. Another one of those like small but pivotal turns in the movie is based on your character and what happens to you and um i can't remember eddie pepitone's character but you know you play Dwayne, the best fisherman in florida and eddie pepitone and they end up in the situation which turns the whole movie on a dime into something much more sinister yes that was uh a, a terrific film um written and directed by a friend of mine shauna Betts, and it's based on her life story and um, I remember reading the script early on before we went into production, and I, I really thought it was terrific. I mean, Shauna, this is a terrific script. And um, she ended up writing that role for me, actually, and a character named Dwayne, and I tried, kind of based it on my brother, um, whose name is Dwayne, who is a Vietnam vet, and that was kind of all my backstory, which you didn't know, but it was all going on in my head. And... Um, yeah, we were in Sarasota for over, I think, two and a half weeks, and uh, really interesting. Great to work with Anna um, and Eddie, and really interesting. Again, that was an interesting thing to do, and I hadn't, I hadn't played that guy either. Um, you know, a guy who's on the boat, Vietnam vet, you know, running drugs, doing drugs. Um, really fun really fun to do. Yeah, actually, even though um, a lot of people think that uh, character actors play the same character, that's kind of like a, a mistake there, because most people, it, it's not, it doesn't work that way. You just play characters, and you kind of bury yourself into the character, and I've never really seen you repeat the same style. I mean, obviously, a lot of times you play, like, the nice guy in the business suit, or, like, you know, the military or, you know, kind of government guy, but at the same time, they all seem completely different. Oh, Thank you. Yeah, I try to drop into whoever, you know, I need to be for that character. Um, I try to do that. So, and then you just keep doing it, and then suddenly you've been doing it for 33 years, and, you know, it's a whole bunch of different people. <laughs> and I just watched Red Sky. Now, Red Sky, I don't believe it was in theaters. It was, I think it was specifically made for video on demand. Uh, it's not on disc. It, I, I rented it on Vudu, and it's available at a bunch of sites. Uh, it's like six bucks. You know, it, it works the way it like works in theaters. You know, you instead of paying the ticket price and traveling to a theater, you know, you just rent it at home, and it's the same price. You don't have to go traveling to try to find it. And I really enjoyed that movie. Oh, great! It was based on the so, book Kerosene Cowboys, right? Yes, it is. It is based on Kerosene Cowboys, and it was uh, directed. I, and I think you might have covered it in the script. Um, by another friend of mine, Mario Van Peebles, who I had done a pilot with called DC Cop back in the 80s. And um, I liked the script very much. And it, again, it was really interesting. And uh, I got to work with Bill Pullman. I mean... Yeah, that's come, awesome. Come on. And uh, and Bill is terrific. And we worked very well together. And uh, again, very fun. And, you know, to be in this kind of, you know... Flyer movie, um, 
really interesting. Again, another great cast. I mean, all those guys in that cast are pretty amazing. Yeah, I think um, it's the second movie you did with Cam Gigagant. Isn't he in Freeride as well? Is that how you say his name? Cam Gigagant? Or Giga- I don't know how to say it. Oh, it's Cam. Uh, yeah, I think it's Gigande or... What? Yeah. <laughs> no clue. I was like... <laughs> I'm waiting for my next movie that I work with Cam again. Yeah, um... I was going to say, oh, Red Sky, where was that shot? Is it actually set in Russia? Did you fly over there? They shot, I didn't shoot in Russia. I shot, um, we shot a little at Fallon Naval Air Station. And then we were shooting in Fallon. We shot in Fallon, uh, Nevada, where the Fallon Naval Air Station is located. Right. <laughs> the rest of the cast, they actually did go to Russia. And they did have an agreement with the Russian Air Force. And it was... You know, they didn't work well with them. They worked with them. They were there, I think, a month. You know, I think uh, you know they set up the movie as to be a franchise. I would love to see a Red Sky too and see you come back. I would love to come back. Yeah, the way the movie ends, it looks like. Well, what are they? These guys going to do next? Yeah, like the next adventure. I don't know. Let's see what happens. Um, if, like I said, if listeners go find it on Voodoo, it's uh, it's only like three bucks to rent, six bucks to own, or something like that. So it's totally worth the money. Um, so you're, the one thing I have to ask you real quick is, what is a volcano zombie, and how do they exist? Because you have a movie coming up called The Burning Dead, which was called Volcano Zombies. Yeah. <laughs> I just don't know how that is possible. Okay, well, they evidently, uh, I talked to the producer, and he said that they could not use the title, well, they didn't want zombies in the title. So he had to find another title, and he came up with The Burning Dead. Now, again, I did not have a zombie movie. Well, I did have warnings, warning signs. Which is kind of, it's a rage virus, but it has kind of like the same feel. Yeah, and um, I, uh, Mark Sykes had called me in to read for this film, and I was like, you know what, I'd be kind of fun to do a zombie movie, and you know, have to actually work with the zombies, and warning sign, I didn't get to actually have scenes with the zombies. I, I don't want to be a spoiler, but I actually have scenes with the actual zombies. Cool. In the the burning dead and um it, it was not the largest budget uh but it was interesting it was a, a very interesting film and i got to work with a very talented julia lehman um and uh it was it was actually really fun it was really fun i i was actually work i think i shot it a couple of years ago year and a half anyway I, I, we were i was actually shooting a scene with zombies on halloween Nice. <laughs> uh, in the next two movies you have coming up, you have Bereave with Malcolm McDowell, Jane Seymour, and Keith Carradine. Is that coming out soon? Yes. Uh, I think, I'm not sure. I think they're doing festivals. And he said there was, I talked to uh, the creators a couple of days ago, and they are going to, they're going to have some news in a couple of weeks. Okay. I know they're looking at festivals and, um, again, a terrific, terrific screenplay. And, I mean, you know, I got to work with Seymour and Malcolm McDowell and Carradine and Mike Starr. I got to work with all of them. And it was pretty spectacular. Again, an indie, a smaller budget. So no one is off to themselves. You know, we're in shooting in this apartment building, and large apartment building in Hollywood. And so we're all in one room together. And I'm sitting in a room with Carradine and Malcolm McDowell and Jane Seymour and, you know, and Mike Stark. We're all, everybody's just telling stories. And I'm, I'm in complete heaven, Michael. It, it's just <laughs> complete heaven. 
I, I'm sitting there hearing these Hollywood stories from Carradine and and Mike Starr and McDowell that I it, it's it was really spectacular. I think Mike Starr is severely underrated. Oh, and what a terrific guy! And he's got the best stories. If you ever you know interview him or meet him, you know he'll just keep you going forever. Wow, that sounds um, awesome. Yeah, and it was kind of like story competition. I didn't even get involved. I was so amazed just listening to all the stories. I just sat there and soaked it all in. <laughs> and you get paid to do it. I did. Yes, I did. And uh, Jane Seymour had the wrap party at her lovely home in Malibu. And it was a, it was a spectacular experience. Um, they let me do a lot of improvisation. And uh, I, I have very high hopes for that film. No, I can't wait to see it. So you have actually a movie coming out here. It looks like January 21st. I don't know if IMDb is wrong, but I would hate to miss the opportunity to promote it. And it's The Downside of Bliss. The Downside of Bliss, yes. I, You know, now that we're talking about this, Michael, I'm going, yeah, I have been really lucky. Because in The Downside of Bliss, I got to work with Judd Nelson. And Judd, you know, is a legend. And I actually worked with Judd before. I had recurred on Suddenly Susan. Oh, that's right. Of that, and I knew Judd from that. And we had a great time. I mean, um, again, I got to play a character I hadn't really done yet. So I'm a big-time music producer. Um, and I, I colored it a little bit differently than something other things I've done. So, I, you know, I got to be the, the big mocha. You know, I got to be the big dude. And um, very, I think, well-directed. It was a good screenplay. And, you know, I'm playing with Judd. So we had a, that was a really fun time. I'm not sure about that release date. Um, I haven't had any information on that. So that could very well be. Um, I will look forward to, Michael. I don't know. All right. Is there anything else that I'm missing you have coming up you want to talk about? Um, I, I don't I don't think I think that's it. Okay. I, I think that's it for now. Um, I'm casually working on a web series called Bar Chat, which is uh, based on uh, ride sharing. And I wanted to do something on the web. I want to do something on the internet. And when so you know we talked about what you do during your downtime. Uh huh. And so I wanted to do something that I could do creatively and um, something I hadn't done before. For it. So I bought, I bought some little, they're not GoPros, but I bought GoPro-like cameras. And I put them in my car and I call my talented friends and we drive around and joke around. And it's not like, you know, in driving in a car, comedians with coffee, it's not like Jerry's. It's, it's a little different than that. I, uh, um, some of my friends might be recognizable, but um, we, we don't, it's not an interview show like that. But, you know, try to create a little comedy and have some fun. So I'm working on that. It's called Fubar Chat, F-U-B-A-R, you know, the acronym, fucked up the honor recognition. And uh, because, uh, you know, I think one tends to drive a lot of drunk people in those cars. And so that's on... Uh, Funny or Die and YouTube and, and uh, places like that. Okay, yeah, send me a link uh, when it when you get going with it, and I'll post it on the page. Oh, great. That would be awesome, Michael. Thank you. All right, well, thank you for sitting with me for the last hour. <laughs> I didn't realize oh, I was going to take up so much of your time. <laughs> I love it. Uh, I'm 
I'm sorry. Go ahead, what? Uh, Michael, I, I really wanted to say I appreciate this, and um, I wanted to say thank you so much for watching all of those things. You you did your exhaustive research, and that's quite extraordinary. Well, I already knew you from some of the stuff that you had done, and then I was just like really digging into your uh, resume, and I was like, oh, I got to pick that up, pick that up, because you never know what is going to be amazing and that needs to be talked about, you know? Because you know, like, I'm sure you've talked ad nauseum about like the big movies and the Seinfeld appearance and everything like that, but there's some of that stuff that really needs to be talked about, and I'm glad we got to discuss it. Well, thank you very much, Michael. All right, listeners, that's the end of our episode. Thank you for all your support, and have a good night. Thanks, Michael. Good night. talking to the writer and director, Styles White. Um, we're going to be talking about his career, and we're going to be pitching, of course, to the new movie, which comes out next week from Universal. Um, to give you a quick rundown of how I know Styles, um, I met Styles about, I want to say, 2008, and I was working at a hotel, never met each other before, and for some reason when I was checking him in, uh, his name sounded kind of familiar, and I just had a curiosity. I went and looked it up on IMDb, sure enough. He had been a writer on Boogeyman, which I had seen. I had seen it kind of later than when it was originally released. I don't know why. But for some reason, that name really stuck in my head, and I remembered it. And he could have been standoffish, you know, when I brought it up. Actually, I believe I brought it up to his wife, his co-writer, uh, his writing partner, Juliet Snowden. And she got really excited, and he came out. And we talked for, I think, like two hours about trashy movies. And I thought that was kind of funny that, you know, just out of nowhere that – this guy who, you know, no connection to me whatsoever was sitting chit-chat with me for a couple hours about this. And I thought that would be about it. But, you know, he, he gave me his uh, email and we started chit-chatting here and there over the years. The one thing I want to say that, you know, I know a lot of people and that, sound, that didn't sound right. I, what I want to say is I know a lot of people that are kind of vaguely connected to the industry. Some are bigger than others. But I only, like, Facebook know them. You know what I mean? Like, where you just kind of, like, comment on something they post. And that's about it. And maybe they'll, they'll comment back. Uh, Styles and Juliet are completely different for the fact that late 2009, two, late 2008, um, my mom got horribly, horribly sick. She had some sort of uh, bacterial infection that was ripping apart her intestines. Uh, sorry if this is too much information, but it leads to something. Um... We had no insurance. We were completely broke from all the tests, and they had pretty much given her a death sentence. They, they, the doctor literally said, "You should get your will together because you don't have a lot of time left." Doctors refused to help her because she didn't have insurance. And uh, I, I mentioned it on Facebook, and lo and behold, like within a few days, Juliet and Styles helped us out financially. They helped pay for pay for the test that my mom needed and the antibiotics to keep her going. My mom is still alive. And, I mean, maybe it's hyperbole, but part of it, I think, has to do with the fact that they helped. And they helped me, too, because 
because she was sick, I had to wake her up every couple of hours and check her temperature. And if it got too high, we we're going to have to rush her to the hospital. And I was having a nervous breakdown because no one wants to lose a parent, especially when it's like this weird, drawn out, like you know it's coming, but you don't know what to do about it. You know, I wasn't sleeping at all, and I was I was constantly like on edge. And, you know, Juliet sent me a book about overcoming mental pain to deal with physical pain. Uh, it's funny because I forgot the name of the book, but I passed it on to someone else who was going through it too. I mean, I got obviously got beyond that point. And I have to thank both of them so much for all the help that they've done for us for that for that time period. You know, and you know, since then of course they've gotten busier, you know, they did knowing, um, which was a big hit, even though some people are kinda like love it, hate it, but it was a big hit. And it gave them the opportunity to write possession, which was a big hit back in two thousand twelve. And now it's it's really exciting to see like all this hard work pay off and now Styles gets to write and direct his first movie and it's a studio film it's lower budget but that's irrelevant you know he's got the big marketing push and stuff like that and i, I can't believe it could happen to a nicer guy you know um, and Juliet, you know she's doing documentaries now she did a documentary called hollywood hair uh, i just the success really does come to people who really are determined really focused positive and just decent people and i thought i thought not so subconsciously of course they're helping me with this podcast but at the same time i really wanted to help push the movie yes they have universal's money but you know besides a movie ticket there's not much else i could do except for this and i thought it'd be a great opportunity not only just to get to know more about his career but also discuss the movie so i guess here we go i'm going to play a little bit of the trailer first just to give you a, a teaser the funny thing is the trailer usually is purely visual but this one's a, a lot on uh like the old style radio commercials you would hear you know the ones that would play for like 30 seconds and give you an idea what kind of movie it was this is kind of trailer. So I'm going to go ahead and play that, and then we'll go right to the interview. What's going on? I just don't want to go out tonight. Are you sure you don't want to come? I'm good. Oh, go have fun. Friends we've gathered, hearts are true, 
shows a sign. How's it going, Styles? Hey, Michael. How excited are you about the new movie? We're excited, for sure. Um, you know, we, we've written movies in the past that have come out, and that, that's fun. But you, have, you usually haven't been as involved in the, in the making of the film, so obviously this time with, uh, with this being my directorial debut and being involved in every aspect of making this movie, uh, we're really excited about Ouija coming out. So, um, give me a br brief description. I've seen the trailer a few times, but uh, if you want to, just give me a breakdown of what the movie's about. Yeah, really, it's um, uh, this. You know, it's about a couple friends who used to play the Ouija when they were girls, and uh, and one of the friends dies in under mysterious circumstances, and so the surviving group of friends. There are all these unanswered questions to her death, and this friend, Debbie, had been acting weird on, in, in the days leading up to her death, and this group of friends decides to try to contact this lost friend through the Ouija board and see if they can reach out to her, see if they can talk to her one more time and make some kind of connection and get answers. And uh, the movie really, it goes from there. It's about... Uh, you know what happens when you when you attempt to make contact and and open a door to the other side the uh, you know the effects of what can happen when you do such a thing now I've noticed this is from the board game right this is produced by Hasbro yeah they are one of the, they're one of the producing partners on this project for sure yeah I noticed they took their name off of it right because I noticed in the trailers they don't really say it's you know they don't put their logo like the way they do with GI Joe and battleship and Transformers. Oh no, they're on there. Um, I didn't notice it. I was wondering if it was like a conscious choice to make sure that people knew that this wasn't a joke movie. This, I mean, I know your your movies always have a sense of uh, deep emotion and a family feel, like all the characters are family. That way, the things that happen to them, uh, there's a stronger effect instead of it being like a thrill ride. And um, Yeah, for sure. No, Hasbro's always been a, a part of this project. This is... This is one of the, uh, since they are the owners of Ouija, uh, this is one of, they developed a couple of, a few different board game projects with Universal, and Ouija was one of them. And naturally, uh, the inclination for us when we were brought onto the project, we knew it was going to be a certain budget, uh, a lower budget movie, because uh, the producer Jason Blum was on board of this as well, who has done Sinister and Paranormal Activity and Insidious. So it was going to be that kind of a movie. Uh, Michael Bay's company, Platinum Dunes, was on board because they had just done The Purge uh, 1 and 2 with Jason Blum. So they together they had made some smaller movies that felt a little bigger. And because it's Hasbro's board and they have, uh, they have deals with Universal to develop these projects based on some of their toys and, and properties... They were involved as well, so it was a it was a lot of it was a big group effort on this, and and there were you know there were some certain things Hasbro uh, 
wanted us to be cautious about, but I think they were excited that it was, like you said, it was a really at its core a story about friendship and that the the board was really being used to try to to do what people have been using it for for you know over 120 years or something to try to to try to speak to the dead and and everyone agreed that that was a that was a cool way to take the idea and the nice part is this is one of those mini genres of like the horror world where PG-13 and characters are usually embraced instead of like, well, it needs to be R-rated, it needs to have the gore, it's rejected by the fans. Usually like these kind of stories, you know, the ghost-based, supernatural ones, people people are perfectly fine with it being PG-13. Yeah, that's, Juliet and I really, that's our space where we like to create stories is in that PG-13 world because it does, it does push you to to be creative and character driven with with some of the choices that you make and especially in the world of scares it it is more about tension and atmosphere and relationship situations because you can't you can't go to the extreme places that uh, that an R-rated horror film can which by the way I'm I'm a big fan of uh, John Carpenter's Halloween Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, these are some of my favorite films. John Carpenter's The Thing. Uh, but for uh, for this movie and the audience that we want to come out and see it, which it's going to be a lot of high school and college-aged kids, uh, I want them to all be able to come see it and not have that R rating be a barrier. So there was there are creative things we needed to do and uh, and still keep the movie really scary, but you know our movie that we we did a couple years ago that we wrote the possession that's PG13 the ring is PG13 exorcism of emily rose is PG13 so there's there's a lot of latitude within that rating that you can you can push boundaries and and still make a really really scary movie well one of the scariest movies of all time is in fact PG jaws Right and, and Poltergeist both are you know amazing rides and scary and then both are PG. Of course, this is before PG thirteen existed. Right, but I think they would still both be PG thirteen, even even if they were uh, if they were done today. Uh, I think both of those films could could get a PG thirteen. Do you remember Poltergeist? Do you remember when R rated movies like getting into them when you were younger wasn't an issue? Did you ever sneak into one? Uh, hundreds. <laughs> I mean that was that's what we did and and yeah it wasn't an issue there wasn't uh we had a neighborhood theater at the edge of our neighborhood it was a dollar movie theater and uh they would get the they would get the movies about 3 weeks after they were first run you know 3 to 4 weeks later and I don't even think there was anyone standing at the door you would get your ticket at the booth and go in, and you you could just basically pick any door that you wanted to walk into. There were there was no uh, there was no guardian, there was no gatekeeper keeping us out. So I, I mean, I saw I saw everything probably uh, at an age um, years younger than I probably should have. <laughs> yeah, I remember I, I was right at that point when PG thirteen started being like pushed more, and kids were starting to get carded. I think the very first R rated movie that I ever saw. That wasn't action. I don't understand why I could get into a movie where a guy could blow away 80 people with a machine gun. No problem. Right. But for some reason, Army of Darkness was such a struggle to get into. And to this day, I still have no idea why that is rated R. 
influenced you the most in that genre there's probably tons of movies that influenced you but specifically that genre what to make Ouija um well just in all the movies that you've done you know like the kind of movies you grew up with that kind of like sit in the back of your mind and like kind of guide you know we, we don't really say that all these movies are influenced by other things but subconsciously I think we have like a little guidebook where we want to go with our projects yeah I, I mean the movies that I watched over and over again a couple of them I just mentioned uh Elm Street, Halloween. One, one thing I really like about Halloween and why I can, I can literally watch it every year around this time of year and enjoy it is I just, I love the, uh, the neighborhood feeling to that movie. I like that it was, it was teenage characters, but it wasn't necessarily teen horror. It, it was just, those were the characters that happened to be experiencing this story. And I, I love the idea in that movie that you've got Jamie Lee Curtis as babysitting these kids, and they're still very much into the little kid Halloween tradition. And then there there are these adults in the story, the the parents and and Doctor Loomis, etc. They're just of the adult world. They don't really care that it's it's Halloween night. But you've got these teenage characters who are who are sort of one foot in each world. They're not quite children anymore. They're not quite adults anymore. I love finding characters at, at that moment in their uh, in their evolution in their life, and I just love the the fact that it had a very neighborhood feel to it. That the characters would walk home from school, they would walk to each other's houses. It had a it had a community feeling to it, and and it added to the the scariness that you could look out your back window and see Michael Myers standing there with the the laundry blowing around him and. Uh, and you could look out your window and look across the street to your friend's house and the the lights weren't on and you wondered if, if they're okay over there. And there was a very tight feeling to that movie that I loved. And in fact, it, the the look of that movie very much influenced uh, Ouija that we just did in that um, that movie was shot in South Pasadena, which is near our house here in Los Angeles. And so when we were location scouting for Ouija, I wanted, I really wanted to get that feeling of, of the neighborhood for my movie. And I think right now South Pasadena has pretty strict filming regulations. Like you can't film past 11 o'clock at night and it, it's pretty, it's, it would be pretty tough to, to try to do a movie there, especially if you had night shots and stuff. But the, the neighborhood next to it, Highland Park, was very much developed and built up around the same time, and they have a lot of those classic-looking houses, and that's where we ended up shooting the movie. So uh, Halloween was definitely an influence on some of the production design and visual look that I wanted to get for, for Ouija. And, and the budget, you said, was pretty tight. It's like, uh, is it like under $2 million or something like that? No, it, it's more like, a, it's more around $5 million. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I know that Bloom, they usually keep their movies pretty tight. Like, I know in the beginning it was like Insidious was like $2 million and stuff like that. But it looks like, you know, that and The Purge are starting to get a little bit more money on them. I was wondering how you could afford to shoot in California, period, on that kind of budget unless it was all, like, set-based. So, is, 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 well, it, is it a struggle, though, getting, like, getting the permits and stuff like that and shooting around traffic and people? I don't think it's I don't think it's as much of a permits and and that kind of challenge, but 
th this film, Ouija had qualified for a California tax incentive. So by shooting it here, we got some some money back at the end of the production. So it was actually uh, beneficial uh, to shoot it here. We got a little more bang for our buck on this movie. And then we just did some really smart things uh, that saved us money as well. My, my production designer really helped me with that. And that every time you, every time you move locations, you're spending money. So all the, all the big trucks, the camera trucks and, uh, props and wardrobe and costume, every time you, you've got to hook up one of those trailers and drive it to a different location, that's going to affect the budget. So we, we picked a location where, we could film all these different parts to it. We could film streets, we could film houses, we could film the friend's house, uh, other, other little scenes that we had. Uh, we found an empty storefront in that area where we were, able to, we were able to build some little soundstage pieces. So for about a three-week period out of the five weeks of shooting, we, never, we didn't really move location. It was almost like a mini backlot soundstage in this neighborhood uh, in Highland Park, California, and that was a uh, that was very efficient for us. And that we were coming to the same place every day and filming, but sometimes you'd film at this house, or then go across the street, or go into the soundstage to shoot a bedroom or something like that. So there's lots of lots of tricks that you do to uh, to work with the budget. Well, that must help with the patience issue too, because I noticed. It seems like a lot of movies, it's a lot of hurry up and wait. So while you're just constantly moving stuff around, trying to set up, but if you're already in the same location, it can save time and money. Right. When you see the movie, uh, the, the main location uh, for Debbie's house is this great big uh, Tudor revival house. It was three stories plus a, a huge basement at the bottom. So it's basically a four-story house. Every floor was giant. And... We filmed about three weeks solid inside that house. So, yeah, you'd, you'd get there in the morning, and the cameras were already there, the lights were already there, it was already set dressed, it was ready to go. It was like that became our our soundstage, and uh, and yeah, we could we could show up in the morning and pick right back up where we left off the day before, jump into the next scene, and the crew was very familiar with the space and how to get things around and uh, how to light the windows for daytime or nighttime. And you, you fall into a good, a good efficient rhythm when you're in one place for a, for a long time. So we were lucky in that regard as well. And with your cast, I was looking through and I recognize a couple faces, but there's no like character actors or stars was that was the studio pushing for names, or were they let you be free with who you wanted to pick? You know, I think on this movie, what was important to us is that I wanted I wanted the good characters. I wanted actors who who understood the story that we were trying to tell, and it was about friendship more than anything. More about scary stuff. It was about friendship. So I wanted to get a feeling of our cast that you really believed that they were a group of friends. And so that was just a, that was just a matter of chemistry of finding the right people. I knew the main, the main character of Lane was going to be very pivotal because she's in pretty much every scene of the movie. And you really needed to believe her journey 
that that after the the mysterious loss of this friend that for her trying to use the Ouija board and reach out to that that friend isn't the most ridiculous concept in the world that you would really believe that that's something that she would do and that her friends would support her and do that with her and that they would all come together in this effort and you know so that was someone we were really trying to figure out who that was going to be and I had seen Olivia Cook on Bates Motel and I liked what she was doing on that show and she was she was a very specific character she wasn't playing the character that that I needed for Ouija but she seemed like a very good actress and I wanted to meet her so when she came into audition uh I could I could see for myself that she wasn't she could be a lot more than who she was playing on on Bates Motel and we just we just liked her right away and it felt like she was the right she was the right actor for the role and then around her we really built up the other the other parts uh using her as the as the anchor there so w- when you're casting young actors a lot of them the work that they've been doing recently it's it's going to be in TV because that's just where a lot of young actors are working and it and it's great because they've got they can be young but they've got a lot of hours of experience of being in shows on camera working with the crew uh Darren Kagazov was on the secret life of the american teenager and you know they did 100 something episodes of that show so he he could get right into it and and even though that was the only thing he had uh, he had really done before Ouija he had done it for a number of years and done a lot of episodes and uh I needed I needed actors like that Doug Smith had been on HBO's Big Love and has been in a, a ton of movies in different parts yeah I had seen him about 10 years ago in Santa's Sleigh and I knew back then that was a kid you should watch out for and I guess I just kept missing him in whatever he was showing up in But I'm glad to see that he's in something big because I, you know, like back then you could just see the talent already at such a young age. Yeah, and his his brother is an actor. His older brother is an actor as well, uh, Greg Smith, who was the on Everwood. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, that's his brother, and who was also in uh, Small Soldiers, which is a movie I worked on when I was at at Stan Winston. So when I was talking to Doug. He said, "Do you, do you remember me when I was a little kid? I would I would tour the Small Soldier set and I would come by the studio. I didn't remember him as a little kid. That was a lot that was a lot of years ago, but um it is funny how paths just continue to cross as you stay in this business for a long time." I guess this is a good point. Maybe we should go back. I'm curious as to how you even ended up in the whole special effects world anyway. Yeah, well, when I was done with college, I had studied screenwriting. That's that's what I wanted to do and I was just like a lot of other people I was sitting in my apartment typing scripts and trying to teach myself screenwriting and learning how to do it and reading a lot of scripts and uh but I was also working I w- I wanted to work on movies. While I knew it would take a while to sell a script or get an agent or any of those steps i felt like i was a million miles away from from being able to get uh achieve any of that i was i was still i was still learning i was still trying to figure out how to write these scripts so i wanted to work on movies i wanted to work in the business i had a passion for it and uh my neighbor in i lived in calabasas california which is a neighborhood outside of la and my neighbor uh, shane mayhan 
was one of Stan Winston's top effect supervisors at the shop. And I just struck up, a, I was obviously a fan of all the movies that Stan Winston had done, and I struck up a friendship with Shane. And for a couple years, and we would talk about movies, we would hang out, we'd go see movies, he would tell me about projects and cool things that they were working on. And then I had been uh, looking around for a job, and he called me one day and said, you know, our, our company's growing and we've got multiple projects and uh we just need some help we just need some assistant help administrative help i'm not an artist in any way but i love the business and i love effects movies and i i became their assistant and their production coordinator for uh it turned into a nine-year job when i was over there and it was a really great time to be there because it was just after jurassic park one, which as a movie really, really opened the, the floodgates, so to speak, of the kinds of movies that studios suddenly realized they could, they could now make with, uh, with what digital effects could do and what live action effects could do. I mean, the animatronic dinosaurs that Stan Winston's studio built for that movie were some of the biggest, most complicated, full-size animatronics that had that had ever been done. So you got a lot of you got a lot of big epic effects movies in the wake of that everything from, you know, a producer would see Jurassic Park and suddenly um they were like, "You know what? We can finally do Starship Troopers. We finally know how to make that movie which had probably been kicking around in development for a long time or a movie like uh Remember Sean Connery did the voice of the dragon, that movie oh, Dragonheart? Dragonheart, yeah. Yeah, that, again, that was another project that had been kicking around for a long time. And so Jurassic Park really paved the way for everything from those movies to uh, a movie that we did at Stan Winston's uh, Lake Placid about the giant, giant uh, alligator. Which they've made like five sequels. <laughs> right. Right, but everything suddenly everybody realized you could make giant, huge creatures, giant spiders or giant dragons or giant alligators, uh, and it was a it was a really boom time at at the studio. So while I was a production coordinator there, while I was still working on my scripts and writing at night and on the weekends, I got to work on a lot of great movies and learn a lot and work with Stan and uh, and and just be around a lot of movies that were in production and it just added to my uh just added to my education i'll say your resume the, the movies you worked on are some of the I, I think i went to see almost every single one of these in the theater uh, we're right. talking jurassic park 3 galaxy quest which is a per, uh, perennial favorite in my in my book uh small soldiers mouse hunt um i don't know if that movie's loved by everybody else but man that's that's a great one uh congo ghost in the darkness Interview with a Vampire. That's a huge catalog of movies. Oh, and Sixth Sense. How could I forget that one? Right. That's a lot of experience, and they're high-end movies. So it's you know you got to work with the best. That's how did. What exactly does a production coordinator do? You know, what was cool is a lot, a lot of times I would be the first person to read the script when it came to the studio. So if the if Shane Mahan or or the other effect supervisor. I, I work for John Rosengrant. You know, they're out on the shop floor sculpting and supervising and, and getting things made, but new incoming projects were were coming through all the time. So 
because Stan had, say, the relationship with Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall from the Jurassic Park movies, uh, a script like The Sixth Sense would come in. And they say, this is a, this is a script we're going to do. We have this writer-director who's really great. Everyone loves the script. Um, and I would, be, I would be the first to read it. And I would go through it and highlight what I thought the, the effects were that, that the Winston studio would, would need to create. And then from there, I would discuss it with the effects supervisors, and we would create an effects breakdown. So it would be, you know, on page 30, there's a, a wound on someone's face, or there's a, you know, a, a, a bullet wound or blood, or you're going to need a puppet for this effect because it's going to get hit by a car or something like that. So we would go through, we'd create an effects breakdown, and then create a budget for what all of that would cost and a timeline for how long that would take and present these bids and budgets and timelines to the producers and, and try to get the job. And then once we got the job, it was just a lot of, um, it was a lot of assistance and coordinating of shipping effects and people to all, you know, wherever, wherever they were shooting the movie. So, uh, you know, something like Sixth Sense shot in Philadelphia, and we had to figure out ways to pack up all the effects and who was going to go to set and apply the makeup, and I would just, I would just help coordinate all those, all those millions of details. That's pretty cool. I, I know it's pretty complicated. I just, I, I assume that's what a production coordinator was, but I didn't want to, like, get it wrong. Thanks for telling me. I had no idea. Yeah. Um, so jumping from Stan Winston Studios into doing your first screenplay, was there a big gap between the two? No, I, I was kind of, I was writing and working on my scripts with my wife, Juliet Snowden. After we got married, she had been writing separately. She had been writing on her own. I'd been writing scripts on, on my own, but we thought after we got married, we should combine forces and be a writing team. Because we ended up helping each other and, and talking with each other all the time on each other's scripts anyway. So we thought, let's just, let's just team up and come up with these concepts together and we'll write, we'll just start writing these scripts together. Because that's what we both wanted to do. We both wanted to be screenwriters. We were working our, our day job, so to speak. But the end goal was to be working writers in Hollywood. So after we got married, we, we didn't have anything. We didn't have an agent. We didn't have managers. We we had nothing, and we didn't even really have a, a a script that we'd written together that was our calling card that represented what the kind of work that we wanted to do. And at the time, I think uh, Wes Craven's Scream was was the big movie. And what was great about Scream is it it helped bring horror back. Which was almost dead. I think. I think there was only like one hit movie in the last four years. And I think that was um, Candyman. You know, if you want to consider it like a lower budget horror movie. I remember horror was just like barely. The only company that was releasing them was like Dimension and very very small companies. And then of course Dimension did Scream, and that's when all the studios started getting back in the game. Yeah, it really did. It, it brought it all back, and it was a weird moment where everyone had sort of forgotten how to make a horror film, or that there was a an audience out there for it that wanted to go get scared on a weekend and, and see a movie with all their friends. So Scream came out and 
and really brought back the 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 teen horror genre in a big way because remember then after that then it wasn't just revisionist horror like scream but then it was i know what you did last summer it went it went it opened up the gates for just traditional more straightforward horror as well um and so we thought well by the time we finish this script or we come up with something we don't want to we don't want to write for the moment right now we need to think ahead in the next three years or so and we thought you know this audience will have grown up a little bit so we projected into the future a little bit and we we wrote a very rosemary's baby inspired script about a a young woman that gets engaged in a in a whirlwind romance and maybe her fiance isn't she suddenly suspects maybe he isn't who she thinks he is so it was just more of a psychological horror story and that became uh that really became our calling card script that we sent around and it helped us get it helped us get managers who read it and they liked it and they wanted to work with us but we ended up not we we developed that script for a little while with some some producers but we never ended up selling it so we still hadn't we still hadn't made money at it yet we hadn't had a breakthrough and we wrote another script that took a, a you know about another year to write and that was a that was a ghost story and we ended up optioning that script to Wes Craven's company and uh, and then that was really that's really what started us from there. Uh, when Wes optioned our, our script, it's called The Waiting, that really set everything else in motion. And from that, I was able to, not, not financially, because it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of money, but it, it gave us a, a moment to say we should, we should take a chance on this and try to go for this writing thing full time. And that's when I, uh, that's when I quit uh, my job at Stan Winston's, and it wasn't—I didn't quit overnight or anything like that. I think I—I I think I gave him like two months' notice. <laughs> That's a long notice. Yeah. <laughs> just in case, was it was just in case notices in case you change your mind? Well, it was like you know the deal was going to go through, and you know it, it wasn't going to happen overnight. But I just said in the you know in the next two months, I'll, let's find someone new, and I'll train them, and I'll transition out, and this new person can transition in and. Um, and it was it was perfect timing. What happened to those scripts? You know the um, you know sometimes it, it has its moment and and then you just you move on from it. You you really do. Uh, obviously the the West Craven project it never it never got made, but it it sure opened a lot of doors for us, and we got a lot of we got a lot of meetings from it, and a lot of people read it. And we're fans of it, and and I think what happens a lot of times, for any aspiring screenwriters out there listening to this, you know, sometimes the the script that you write that opens the doors for you, it's not the one that gets made, but it can lead it can lead to something else that does get made. So in in many ways, it it totally served its purpose of everything that we needed that script to do, which was open doors and, and, and get on the, get on the map. And from there we were able to go to meetings and pitch new ideas or take writing assignments of, of things that were, that were open. 
that we maybe had a take on or a pitch for and we could take a job and and that that's actually how we got boogeyman uh because they had recently read the waiting and needed a rewrite on a script that they had and we we took it we thought that was a great opportunity i mean to be able to to option your first script to Wes Craven and then your first writing assignment is for Sam Raimi's company. That was just, that was like my dream one-two punch if there ever was one. So uh, to be able to do my first two projects with, with those two guys was awesome. And you did a rewrite on it, right? I believe Eric Kripke did the original and you... That's right. And you were, um, when did you come into that? Well, he, Eric had written a script and then was busy... He was uh, he had a show, not supernatural. He did that right after. Um, I think remember the WB had a Tarzan series. Oh yeah, for a moment, and he was the creator and showrunner of that. So he had suddenly gotten super busy, and we did a we did a rewrite on the script, and and it went from there. So yeah, we share credit with him on that. You get um, a piece of the sequels? Uh, no. Ah. Oh. No, just, that's just, a franchise right there. Just the writer. Um, so did you ever get to visit the – did you go to New Zealand? That's where it shot, right? New Zealand or Australia? Yes, we did go to We did go to New Zealand. How awesome was that? That was great. That was really cool because uh, the production the, – the train was moving very fast, so to speak. So the production was rolling, and uh, they needed – they were about to shoot in, in two weeks, and and – they needed, uh, they needed us to just come down and keep working on the script and sit in on the table read and make revisions uh, right up until they started shooting. Because a lot of times you'll, you'll get to the set and you just, need to, you just need to revise things because you're shooting over here at this barn and not like you wrote it in the script where it's in a, in a garage. So sometimes it's strictly location-based script revisions that you need to make because it's just physically different than what you wrote and you've got to figure some things out or you may get down there and everyone's looking at the script and they're they're plotting it out and maybe it just feels like the, the movie still needs three more scares and you just you got to brainstorm it and figure out what that can be and just punch it up and do more work on the script or make a scene better or make something make more sense than it, than it's making in the, in the writing, you know, to sit at the, at the script read through where all the actors are there and everybody reads through the script and you get to hear it out loud. You're, you're sort of immediately rewriting as you're listening to it. You're like, Oh, I want to change that line. And I, or I like the way she says that or, when when these two characters are talking, that's really good. So we should write a little more for them. When it all starts coming to life like that, you you want to keep writing and improving it because you see all these opportunities to make things better. So yeah, we got to go to New Zealand and 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 just get thrown right into the process. And it was a lot of work, but really awesome to be on the on the set of the the first movie that we we got to write and see it all see it all happen before our eyes. It was really cool. The first time that you had to do like an instant rewrite, did you have like a panic attack or did you just get that creative adrenaline rush? It's a little both. I'd, I'd say it's both. You're, you're, uh, you're just thinking on your feet and 
but you're also very much in you're you're one hundred percent absorbed into the into the process. So you're you're living it and breathing it and and eating it all day. So when something gets thrown at you, and and it's a lot like the directing experience I just had as well. When you're living it two four seven and a, a creative situation comes up, you need to change something. You need to rethink something. You're you're so much in that zone in that moment that you can kind of think of things quickly and keep it moving along. And then yeah, sometimes they're just like we just need something scarier. And you may throw out five or six ideas and only one of them works, but the one that works could be a really cool idea. But a lot of times you're just looking at a the producer of someone will say we need something scary to happen we think right here in this room in this bedroom or in this closet or in this uh, so what what could happen that's right here and so you you know uh, you know what you've got to work with and you just figure something out just figure something out that could be scary or cool and I, I believe if I remember correctly Boogeyman was made first from Ghost House Pictures but it came out after The Grudge am I wrong? No, that's correct. They were they were after shooting Boogeyman. They were going uh, to Japan and they were shooting The Grudge next. But uh, but you know, a lot of times with with these movies, it's not it, it, it's not about the order in which things were shot. I think the the Grudge and I think they were released on by two different entities of Sony's. Boogeyman was Screen Gems, and The Grudge might have been. Columbia or TriStar or something like that, um, and so each of these branches have their own. They have their own slates and their own release schedules of when they need to put something out. So they know in this quarter they need to put out an action film, and the second quarter a horror film, and another. So I, I think it was purely just a scheduling thing. But I, what I what was great is that The Grudge came out first. And the Boogeyman trailer played with the Grudge, and so I think it, I think it really set us up in a bigger way because the Grudge ended up being a, a huge success, which was awesome. Which yeah, probably helped Sony put more into promotion. They, I remember seeing commercials like nonstop. And, yeah, and and it did. I remember the first one did very well. I think the second and third one went straight to video, but there might be a rhyme and reason to that. I don't run a studio. I don't know what they what they do with that. Yeah, but I mean that's that's a formula too where. If you have a if you have a theatrical film that leads the way, it can be a it can be a, a direct to DVD franchise after that, because you know the commitment to put something out in in theaters and a wide release is is big, but there's still a fan base for the title or the characters or uh, the world of whatever the movie is. So sometimes you can you can have a very successful franchise that continues on in, in DVD. One of the last films I, I worked on when I was at Stan Winston's, and it was a movie that Stan actually produced, was called Wrong Turn. And I saw the other day, they're on Wrong Turn 6. Yeah, I can't believe how that franchise just endures. Horror fans... When they when they connect to something, they are loyal to the end. Even after like some moments where you're like, I don't know why we're still watching these. Like the there's a couple of those Friday the Thirteenth movies where it kind of stunk up the joint. But man, the fans they'll stick to it. Sure, yeah. I mean, it, like I said, once once that world has been established, it, it's almost like um, it's almost like a TV series. 
where you, 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 there's a way you can revisit that world um, over and over again through these uh, direct-to-DVD titles. Although now with DVD not, not being quite what it was, things going more streaming and iTunes and things like that, I guess calling it direct-to-DVD isn't, isn't really the term anymore. It's video-on-demand or, or whatever it is now. Yeah, I think Crackle is going to be the first company to do a streaming sequel for Joe Dirt. So that right. might be a new thing. Cool. Um, how did you end up in animation? In animation, um, when when I left Stans and was starting to write, my my brother, who had been an actor for a number of years, had a relationship with a production company called Hyperion Pictures, and they were interested in developing some other kinds of projects. And so I was still, you know, I was still a new full-time writer and really, you know, looking for any, any opportunity I could. And uh, my brother and I developed some, some projects uh, that the two of us ended up producing and writing and uh, tried, my, tried my hand in that for uh, a little while, which was, a, which was certainly a fun, it, it's a fun business. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very different than traditional filmmaking, which I prefer because you you'll write the script and then you ship it off and the animation happens in Korea or someplace else and and the shots come back and you preview them so that there's this um, there's a detachment from the for me at least being a writer from the filmmaking part of it where you write it and then and then the whole thing comes back and it's it's done and it's like oh great well there there's the movie and you know, sometimes you're involved in the in the voice recording sessions, and that can be really that can be really cool uh, if there are cool people who are who are doing the voices. That's a fun part of the process. But uh, yeah, I just sort of fell into that for a few years with with my brother uh, as just something else I was exploring in those first uh, years of being a full time writer. Um, so between Boogeyman and the Knowing. You know, there's about a four or five year gap there. Were there a lot of projects you worked on that didn't get made, or were you doing something else at the time? Oh yeah, no, no, we were writing full time. So I mean, we're we feel lucky that we've had this many films produced so far in our career because there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of stretches where you can you're being hired for things, you're writing assignments for studios, but you know, for all the reasons that movies don't get made. Uh, they don't get made. Sometimes it's a timing thing, it's a budget thing, sometimes the package just isn't coming together the right way with directors or actor availabilities or whatever. So, oh yeah, we, we, were, we were plenty busy um, in that time. And also, you know, in the, if you're looking at actual release dates on something like Knowing, we've been on that script for a while and uh, worked with Alex Proyas writing that script and then and then it was just the process on that movie of of trying to find the right leading man and the right moment to uh, who could get cast in that role and carry the movie and you know so you wait you wait for actors you wait for actors to read it some they're not available they're you know all the different reasons um, and then when Nicolas Cage finally got attached it it just took off like they were, they were shooting nine weeks later. So, uh, yeah, Alex Proyas is probably one of the greatest directors that 
is not a household name, but everything he does, he's very he seems to be very selective about what he chooses to spend his time on. He seems to only yeah. do a movie like once every five years. So it must have been a big deal for him to do this one. Yeah, and, and, and as you can guess, it, it's a lot of it's a lot of pre-production and, and prep work to get these these movies together. And, and there are countless movies that have gone through these long development processes where there are scripts and there are storyboards and visual production art and concept artwork and people are cast and uh, effects are made. Sometimes they're down the road with having spent money on locations and vehicles and wardrobe and all kinds of things. And then, if, you know, at the last minute, the, the plug can get pulled or it just doesn't move forward or the budget's too high and the financier wants the budget down and the director disagrees and the project just, it just goes away. And I think, um, you know, there, there are directors who, who've been down those roads on several projects, but for, yeah, for us, I had loved obviously the crow and dark city. And so that, that Alex Proyas was going to direct knowing was felt very special and cool. And to be able to work with him on the, uh, some rewrites of the script and get his input and his notes and his thoughts of how he wanted to make it. It was just, it was very, it was very exciting for us. And then, uh, and then I was just, I loved the, uh, I loved how that movie turned out as well. I, I, I loved the, I, I felt like it's, it's, it's very much a, a classic Alex Proyas film. It's got his, his touchstones and his, his visual sensibility to it, his tone, and I'm very proud that uh, that he made that movie and that, that we, we got to be a part of it. Yeah, I remember when it came out, there was kind of a dividing line with knowing. It seemed like there was, I, th I think it tested people. It was a lot more thought-provoking than that genre sometimes handles it, you know? And I think for every person who loves that movie, there's a lot of people who are confused by it or frustrated. And, sure. And I th do you feel that you should make a movie, like something that challenges people that does have that uh, love it or hate it kind of feel instead of just going for a more generic, like it'll pleasant, it'll be uh, pleasantly, uh, I can't think of the word. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Why I'm, you know, something that everybody kind of generally accepts. Yeah. I, I think, uh, I think there's different reasons to make movies. And, and I think sometimes you, you do want to, if the story, if the subject matter and the story material is suited for it, you know, making a movie that's just a, an audience-pleasing movie is, is a is a totally fine endeavor uh, to embark upon. But sometimes, and I think especially with science fiction, uh, there is an opportunity there to really pose questions and ask questions, and not necessarily give the answers and let let the experience of the story continue on in the minds of the of the viewer past the the experience of watching the movie and some sometimes people are they're irritated by that and they don't they don't know why they're irritated by it but they they may have gone to the movie because they wanted something answered and it didn't it didn't quite get answered it, it sort of turned the question around on the audience and said well what's what's your answer what's your meaning in this uh, and I I love those kinds of movies I those are the kinds of movies that uh, we continue to talk about and blog about and read about and 
they they nag at people and I think to um you know I think now you're seeing some of that move over into the world of of television on a show like True Detective where it it poses some mysteries and some questions and doesn't necessarily answer all of them or or like Twin Peaks did um 25 years ago at this point I think those those types of uh, shows continue to uh, intrigue people. And the nice part is the movie hit right before the world seemed to turn on Nicolas Cage. I don't know what happened, but one day, right after Kick-Ass came out, you know, like around the Sorcerer's Apprentice, everybody kind of just flipped on him, and I don't know why. He's still a great actor. It's true, some of his movies seem to be about lower beneath him, but he's an actor. It's a job. Yeah, I, I, think, I think he does exactly what he wants to do. I think he... He has a. I think he's he's one of the best that we've got. Um, I w- I got to go to the set to Australia and watch a little bit, and it was it was awesome to see him uh, to see him in person and to see him act. I mean, this is someone who've who I've been watching in movies for like my entire adult life and back into my teens, and I think uh, I think he's done so many different kinds of roles, and he. He continues to uh, to challenge himself in roles in in interesting ways, and uh, I'm I'm always interested in seeing what he uh, what he's going to do next. Yeah, I don't I don't I never really, really cared for it when like people turn on an actor. I mean, they've done it so many times. I don't know if they just get sick of seeing their face or playing the same character, but I've never understood that whole like universal rejection. I was like, uh, you realize he's a person, right? Not just like a character someone grafted. I mean, he is a character, but I mean, not, you know, not like someone drew and created him. It just, it's odd that we do that. Um, yeah, we do that. So, um, then it led up to possession, which is, that's completely your own, right? You didn't, you weren't added onto a script. You and Juliet completely wrote that one. Right. That was based on a, um, on an article that had run in the LA times, about this haunted box, this cursed wine cabinet that had these uh, Hebrew carvings on the side of it. And, and that's really all they, that's all they showed us. They're like, we've, we've got the rights to this article and there's a real, a real Dybbuk box that this guy has. And we just think there's some interesting uh, element here to, to base a movie around. And, we we saw it as an opportunity to do a story where so you didn't have a haunted house but you had this haunted object and what would be cool is that wherever this this box went the phenomena could happen wherever the box was so we were trying to think of reasons why why the box could move around a little bit and then we thought well if if it's this girl who got this at a yard sale and her parents are recently divorced you've got this situation where the the daughters are going back and forth between mom's house and dad's house on the weekends and you get you get this um you get a, a bit of travel with the phenomenon and then the girl takes it to school something weird can happen at the school and that was that was just really our jumping off point that uh we thought what about a a horror story that's told against the backdrop of a, of a recent divorce and what happens to the kids in the middle of that and if the parents are going to be able to to be strong and, and rise above this and figure out how to work together and and uh, and defeat this this thing that they're up against that's a that's a bit larger than life. 
I tend not to like possession movies, like demon possession movies. It's a weird. It's a genre that I've never connected to. But the one that makes a difference, and it's not because I know you. It's because it's it's about family, and you know that's the driving point of everything. If you didn't have the connection of the family, if it was just a straight up scare movie, I don't think it would have worked as well. Yeah, and and again, we were lucky with you know speaking of great directors. Uh, Sam Raimi's company, Ghost House Pictures, had this uh, idea to have Oli Bornadal direct it, who they had they had optioned one of, or they had the rights to a, another film that Oli had done uh, back in uh, back in Denmark, uh, a movie he did there called The Substitute, about this alien who's a substitute teacher, and it's very weird and twisted and funny and then scary it's got it's got all these different tones mashed together into one and we had known uh i had known his work back on the the movie night watch that he did with Hugh and mcgregor that's a hell of a movie right there back in the 90s so when when they said we're you know we think Oli bornadal would be a, a good director for this we were we were totally on board with that we thought that was an awesome idea but and, he, and he's made these other He's made a couple of other films recently that are definitely worth uh, checking out if you look at his his uh, IMDb page um, that that all have these strange family dynamic family drama elements uh, happening in them. So we thought he was perfect for, and it was great to it was just a great experience to work with him and and working with him really. Uh, I think was was helpful right before I had my own directing experience, just being able to observe him and watch his process and see how he worked with actors and how he worked with us as writers. It was uh, it was good education for me. Yeah, that movie's like, I swear, it's always on the top list on Netflix. That must be like one of the most like streamed movies they have over the last year. That, that really connected to people. I remember when I was working retail, that would constantly empty out on the shelf and have to refill it. That, that's, of all the movies I think that you've done, that's the one that's connected most to people. Yeah, I mean, and I think also because it, it, it's PG-13, and I think for a lot of teenagers, it was maybe the first scary movie that they, that they ever saw. You know, we all have our first, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think... I think because there were these, there were two sisters in the story. I think we got a lot of uh, high school girls who that that element of the story drew them to the movie, and uh, it really connected with them on that level. I, I was on Tumblr a while back, and I just I did a search on the possession to see if there were any any if there was anything on Tumblr that was possession related. And people had taken all these little moments from the movie and made these little animated gifs out of them. And it was interesting to see the moments that they picked because sometimes they're they're not uh, they're not the horror moments. They're they're sort of the two sister the sisters talking to each other moments, sort of stating their uh, their outlook on life to each other, almost as these. Uh, as sort of these teenage mantras or something. So it was interesting to see that it, in the year since it came out and since it's been on video and DVD, it's taken on this other life as almost sort of inspirational quotes and inspirational moments that uh, the audience has sort of found on their own. 
how inspired was the casting? I'm gonna say his name wrong. Matisha Yu. Did I say it right? Matisyahu. Wow, I wasn't even close. <laughs> when he got cast, we were like, seriously, that is awesome. I never thought of that. Well, I'll I'll, I'll go one step further with it. We we really based the character on him. Oh. We knew we knew that um, because the there's this intrinsic uh, Hebrew Jewish uh, theme in the story because of the Hebrew carvings on the on the cabinet and where the cabinet had come from. It has this Jewish heritage to the box, and so we knew that like the Exorcist or Exorcism of Emily Rose, any exorcism any exorcism based movie, you got to have the scene where some you you've got to go to the the preacher. You've got to go to some religious expert who's going to be able to help you. And in, in the case of our movie, we knew that that would have to be a rabbi. And we wanted to turn the concept on its head a little bit and not have the older, the older uh, 60-, 70-year-old rabbi who was going to help. We wanted it to be a, a young guy. Like we wanted to, to play opposite of that. And that maybe the older people of the of the temple were too scared by it and didn't want to help. And it was going to be up to this younger guy, the son of the rabbi to, to be the one to come help. And so, you know, basically if you, if you Google cool Hasidic guy, uh, <laughs> honest Yahoo is going to be the first thing that pops up. And, um, this was still back when he had his beard and would, would wear very you know traditional uh, Hasidic clothing. And, but, but he's also a master beatboxer and, and hip-hop artist and singer. And we thought that's the type of guy it should be. And in fact, when you first meet him, with the way we wrote it in the script, he should have earbuds in his ears and he's listening to, uh, he's listening to you know, Israeli hip-hop or something. Um, and so we just sort of used his vibe in our description of the character and created this character. And I knew that they were auditioning various actors who you would have, who who you would know from different things, and we were just checking in on the casting, and uh, we knew they had Jeffrey Dean Morgan and Kira Sedgwick, and we had seen audition tapes of the two girls who were going to play the sisters. It was all it was all really coming together, and then I asked one day, I said, "Who do we know who we're getting to play Zadok?" And they said, "Oh, we got uh, we got Modest Yahoo." So. It was like it was un it was unbelievable to us because I didn't know I didn't know he could act I didn't know he was obviously he's a he's a great performer he he can get on a stage and really command an audience um, I didn't know he was auditioning I didn't know he could act but so by the time the word got to me it was a done deal and he was just cast and uh, we were blown away by it because yes. the authenticity of what he brought to the role. Um, did not need to be learned or rehearsed. He just he just had it. He owned it. And, yeah. uh, if it had been uh, someone else, it might have been overacted, or it it just the, the it wouldn't have seemed honest. Something about sure. it would have seemed like they're acting instead of being that. And that's it was a brilliant choice. Right. Um. So before I get back to Ouija and wrap this up, I wanted to ask you about something that uh, Dead of Nowhere short film. Right. I remember when you were out there filming that, but I have yet to see it pop up anywhere. Probably the reason you haven't seen it pop up is because it's um, it's a 3D film. 
and th there is a 2D version of it, but we really want, we really designed it so that people could see it in, um, in 3D. So maybe soon when the home technology is there for you, I might be able to send you a link to a, a 3D version of it and, and give you the right glasses or something. But that's something that uh, my friend Chris Young directed, and I had written this script, a short film script about it. And we, uh, we just went out to the desert one day and, and made this short film. We had uh, Balthazar Getty and Lynn Shea. And, uh, and we did it as a possible setup to a full-length feature film or a weird TV show or something like that. But it was also uh, an experiment and a test to see what we could do with um, 3D. And Chris is really uh, interested in that whole that whole type of filmmaking, and uh, and it was a it was a very fun, very fun, cool thing to do. Hopefully, we'll we'll figure out a way that more people can see that in the in the near future. Yeah, and for listeners out there, um, you'll probably remember Chris Young. It's, Chris Young uh, is something of a cult icon to my age group. Uh, being in PCU, The Great Outdoors, Warlock Two, bunch of movies around that time period, and now he's basically transitioned into production and directing. Right, and that's the second short film you've done with him, correct? Right, but you're leaving out uh, one of Chris's most iconic role. He was Bryce Lynch on Max Headroom. Oh yes, how can I? That's what he started off in, right? Right. So that uh, that that's the uh, that's the ground zero of of the Chris Young world. I was gonna say pretty much everything he touched has like this cult following. Right. But but he decided to step away. I don't. I'm not gonna have you talk more. But he decided to step away from acting and going more into production. So the first thing he did was the Need, which I believe is still online. Correct. It's probably out there somewhere, yeah. I'll find if I can find a link, I'll put it on with this interview because that that was a really great short film, and I wanted to see it made into a full movie. You never know; there's still the, there's still that possibility. We're always we're always kicking things around, and Chris is certainly a good friend of mine, and uh, we have a good time when we make these uh, when we work on these projects together. Um, so then, after possession, I guess I'll get back on track. Sorry for that little side. That's shot. a good side. <laughs> um, so how is it? That the movie went from being like a seventy million dollar directed by a Mick G movie to being like a more lower base directed by you. How did Ouija end up in your hands? Well, I think it, I think it was really just as simple as um, I think Universal had recently made a, a production deal with Jason Blum, and they had uh, they had had success doing The Purge with uh, Blumhouse and with Michael Bay's Platinum Dunes company. And they they had really pushed on that movie. They had pushed the the boundaries of what you could do with these smaller budgets to make them look and feel like bigger movies, and it could be more bigger event type movies. Uh, I think The Purge is a great example of you know establishing that there's a there's a big crazy world out there. Even though you're stuck in a house, there's this nationwide event that's happening, and it added a real event quality to that movie and then obviously opened up in the summer and opened up like a like a summer movie would did did that level of success so i think uh, ouija was obviously something that they had been developing for a while and there was an earlier incarnation of it that was more of an action adventure maybe a national treasure type movie uh that involved a ouija board and and, and globe trotting a bit and going around and getting different uh, clues around the world and, and trying to trying to solve some 
some cataclysmic event or something like that. Um, but then when, when after, maybe in the, in the wake of the purge, uh, they thought, well, or could the Ouija movie be, and, and because Jason Blum had had success with these scary films that all took place in just a couple locations, whether it was sinister and insidious, maybe Ouija could be more like one of those movies with the budget of what the purge was. And that's really where we came on board. It was just, they hit the reset button on the project. They were going to do it for this smaller budget. And it was really, it was wide open. That, that's, it was like Ouija board, this kind of budget. What, what would you guys do with that? And there was the opportunity for us on the table to, to direct it as well. And our minds immediately went to uh, just being teenagers, playing truth or dare, playing the Ouija board, Someone's messing around with it. It's not really working. Maybe it is working. Weird, weird messages happening. Maybe something weird does happen after playing the game, being freaked out by the game. Just sort of went to those, those personal connections to it and developed a story from there. Like I said earlier, we just thought a very compelling central idea was a, a group of friends have a recent, uh, you know, there's a, a, a death of a friend. And they use the Ouija board to try to get answers. But, you know, if you start researching Ouija board, it's, uh, it, it can be a doorway to the other side than, or like a telephone where you make a call, but you don't necessarily know who's going to answer. And we just thought it could be really scary if you, if you make a call and you just uh, you connect with the wrong entity. Now, I know your wife, Juliet, she's directed a documentary, Hollywood Hair, but you, right. not, you, you have not directed anything before, correct? I had directed music videos for friends and things like that, but no, I had not, uh, I had not directed. I did not know this about you. How uh, Do I know any of these bands? Just, uh, just friends of mine out here. I, uh, I have a friend in a band that was called uh, the Lazy Cowgirls, big L.A. Uh, classic uh, punk band. I did a music video for them, and I did some stuff in college, but I really... I've really been focusing on writing, and uh, but I, but directing was definitely a step I wanted to take, and uh, I had been I had been preparing for it, and uh, and learning as much as I could, and like I said, I'd had these we'd both had these experiences working with really great directors and sponging everything we could off of them. So by the time Ouija came around, I was it was a step I was ready to take. Yeah, Universal has obviously shown a lot of confidence in not just you, but the movie itself because, you know, they're opening at Halloween, big promotional setup. I mean, I don't know if they're playing on a franchise. It looks like they're trying to do a franchise, but it also looks like every other studio got out of your way. So it's not just Universal. It looks like everybody else just said, you know what, let's just scoot our horror movie at least a couple weeks away. Yeah, I mean, that, that's really a side of the whole thing that I'm not, I'm not involved in as much of scheduling and release dates and, and all of that, we knew that if we if we had something good, it could be a it could be a good Halloween type uh, movie. Uh, Blumhouse usually has a, a paranormal activity or something around that time that comes out, and they didn't have one there this year, so this this really filled that gap, um, and just the, the timing of it worked out perfectly. Yeah. Do you have any other projects that you have you you're really wanting to hit? I know you don't like doing remakes 
or uh, sequels so much yourself, but is there is there anything out there that you've been wanting to grab onto, but it, it just hasn't happened yet? You know, we're always working on the next thing and figuring out what we want to do. And I think whatever it is, it's still going to be, it's going to be some kind of story about a family or some relationship that's, uh, that's caught up in a, in some kind of, some kind of supernatural phenomenon, whatever, whatever that is. I, I think I'm never going to get tired of telling those kinds of stories. Sometimes they can be bigger stories or smaller, but I think there, there are definitely some avenues that I'm interested in exploring where we're sort of coming down off of the whole Ouija experience right now. We, I mean, really, we just, we just finished the film, uh, very recently finished final effect shots and the, the sound design and the music scoring. And then it was really getting right into all the, uh, the stuff that we do for releasing the movie coming up. So there was really no break between finishing the movie and then getting ready for the release. So we're finally just coming down from the whole experience of it all and recharging our batteries and, uh, and figuring out what's going to be next for us. All right. Well, I don't have to say good luck because I know this is going to do very well. Um, it comes out October 24th everywhere, and it's called Ouija. Is it, I keep saying this. Is it Ouija or Ouija? Because I've heard it different ways. It, it, is, it is pronounced both ways. And all through pre-production, we would pronounce it all these different ways. And on, on the, I think in the 1970s, on the back of the Ouija box, it, it even says... Whether you call it Ouija or Ouija, it's the game that blah, blah. So even they acknowledged that there were two different ways of saying it. But after we did the table read, we had actors saying it different ways. And <laughs> we, we, we all looked at each other and we go, you know, we have to decide right now. And it felt like more people were used to calling it Ouija. And we went with Ouija. We didn't want to be confusing right at the very, at, at the 11th hour. So uh, it is Ouija. Yeah, that'd be terrible if the trailer said something else, like the the narrating voice would say Ouija, yeah. and then everybody else is saying Ouija in in the like descriptive part. <laughs> it's Ouija. All right, so Ouija comes out in one week. Yes. All right, everybody, go see it. And I guess that wraps up for me. Anything you want to? Any last words? I'm all good. All this right. Was, this was a fun interview, Michael. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thank you. Okay. Right. Bye. Bye. All right, thank you to Styles for seeing through that long, long interview, which went way longer than I told him it would be. All right, so let's check out Ouija next week in theaters everywhere. And check out other episodes of Cult Status on RetroRocketEntertainment.Weebly. We're also up on Twitter, at RetroRocketEnt, and on Facebook. Same name. Good night. Question, try to keep it real. Pay no mind to where you are going, just giving.